Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, good morning and welcome to the Royal College of Surgeons of England. My name is Simon Chaplin. I'm director of the Hunterian Museum here at the college. And on behalf of the college, the Hunterian Museum and the Grant Museum of Zoology at University College London, it's a pleasure to welcome you to this day of talks exploring Darwin's London. Uh, before I start with the introductions, a few words of housekeeping. Um, first of all, if the fire alarm should sound, and you won't miss it if it does sound, um, uh, we will need to leave the building, and if we could gather on the other side of the road opposite the college uh, outside Lincoln's Infields, I hope we shan't be disturbed today, but if we are, the fire exits are through the door you entered, the door at the back, or the door, door at the side there. Secondly, if you have mobile phones, could I ask that you turn them off or switch them to silent so that uh, they don't disturb us during the talk? And third, for those of you who use hearing aids, there's an induction loop fitted in the uh, auditorium. If you'd like to turn your hearing aids to uh, the correct setting, you should uh, have a, be able to pick up the uh, amplified sound. Uh, this morning we're going to have four talks uh, broken into two sessions. There'll be a short comfort break between the two. Um, at lunchtime, uh, tea, lunch, tea and coffee will be served in the council room and committee room one, where coffee was served this morning. Uh, toilets are situated back along this corridor on the left-hand side. That's enough of the housekeeping. On to the business of the day, uh, the talks, which I hope will entertain and enlighten you. Something which forms part of a year of celebrations, Darwin 200, celebrating the bicentenary of Charles Darwin's birth and 150 years since the publication of On the Origin of Species, a book which has changed the landscape of modern society, one of the most important scientific works of all time. Now, obviously, there's a lot of Darwin-related activity going on this year, and in casting around for something which we hoped would offer a distinct and unique perspective on Darwin, we thought a day which explored the relationship between Darwin and London in all its facets would be a unique contribution. This morning we're going to hear about the places in London where Darwin worked and also learn something of London as it was in Darwin's time. Um, I'm very pleased to say that introducing our session this morning, we have Professor Steve Jones. Professor of Genetics, University College London. Um, in addition to his scientific work, Steve has written and lectured for academic and non-academic audiences. He's a regular uh, a broadcaster appearing on radio and television. His publications include The Language of the Genes, which won the Roan Polenk Prize in 1994, and his latest book, Darwin's Island Traces, Darwin's Relationship with England, England as a Centre for Innovation, and a place which inspired Darwin's work. And Steve's interest in all things Darwin and botanical is brought together this weekend when he opens the Chelsea Flower Show, which has a Darwin-related theme this year. So it's my great pleasure to introduce Steve to tell us why Darwin matters. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, why Darwin matters. Um, I give my uh, lectures, many of my lectures at UCL, uh, my first, certainly my first year lectures, I start them with a statement that I'm speaking to you from Darwin's bunker. And that's literally true because I am quite literally speaking 
um, in the Darwin Lecture Theatre, which is on the site of Charles Darwin's London home um, and was probably, uh, within the limits of, uh, of uh, scientific accuracy, was probably his coal hole. Um, and I used to, I used to uh, think that this was merely a metaphor. Um, uh, I used to think this was, this was merely a statement of fact, but now it's become rather a metaphor because, of course, now, somewhat to our surprise, biologists find themselves having to refight some very old battles when they discover that there is a strong anti-Darwinian current, um, not only in the United States, which is e where it's easy to mock at a, sa at a safe distance, but also here in Britain. And I want to talk briefly about uh, perhaps why that's reappeared, this creationism nonsense has reappeared, um, why, of course, Darwin was right, um, and, and why there are limits to what Darwinism can say about ourselves, and, those, and exceeding those limits may actually have something to do with the rebirth of the great anti-Darwinian theme that we see in some parts of the world around us. Well, um, uh, I've found myself, as of many people in this room, many biologists, uh, very much occupied over the last few months um, in uh, promoting things Darwinian. And I've accepted a couple of uh, talks, which perhaps in retrospect I shouldn't have done, and I exclude this, of course, from that category. Um, for example, I was found myself um, a couple of days ago uh, in Westminster Abbey discussing, and I hadn't uh, bothered to find out what we were supposed to be talking about, um, a title, the title was utterly absurd. It was, Did Darwin Kill God? Well, as, West, as Charles's bones are actually in Westminster Abbey, I think it was probably more accurate to say that God killed Darwin. Um, um, and it seemed to me an utterly foolish question. The two things have nothing to do with each other. It wasn't quite as foolish, or perhaps slightly even, it was just as foolish as something I found myself talking about in St. Paul's Cathedral about three months ago, where once again, as I wandered in, I said, what are we talking about? Uh, the question, the, uh, the um, topic was, um, why are we here? Uh, a Darwinian view. And I looked blankly, and I thought, oh, my God, what can I say about that? And as I uh, began, I said, well, I don't know why we are here, but I know why I'm here. <laughs> it's because you can't afford Richard Dawkins. <laughs> but those two t topics, to me, show how Darwinism has gone too far. Uh, Darwinism, although it's a wonderful science and it makes sense of the whole of biology, says remarkably little. It says nothing about religion. It says almost nothing about the human predicament um, and human society. And I think we have to be very careful about going too far, as I say, in that, um, in that, uh, in that direction. At the Westminster Abbey event, I was rather poo-pooed by uh, Lord Bob Winston, um, who started his presentation by saying, of course, it was completely stupid to claim that anybody in the world today, um, or anybody in Britain today at least, believed in young earth creationism and to, to knock over, to criticize um, uh, the biblical account was foolish, simply foolish. This was simply uh, kicking, down, kicking a straw man when he was down. And when I started, I pointed out that for the last two or three years, when I've given my introductory evolution lectures in Darwin's bunker, there have been emails and even once a petition from students, uh, signed by quite a few students, asking either that they be allowed not to attend those lectures, or that I shouldn't give them, or that there should be no, question, no questions related to them in the exam, because such lectures insulted their religion. So this notion, really, that creationism is dead and Darwinism has triumphed, even among biologists and their biology students, of course, um, is quite wrong. If you believe a recent, uh, a recent um, 
opinion poll here in Britain, there are something like five million creationists even in Britain. As I said to my publishers recently, I don't mind if those guys uh, burn my books as long as they buy them first, but they don't show much sign of doing that. So what did Darwin do, and why was it important, and why was it perhaps less important than many people might, might, hope, might hope? Well, I guess we all know, or we think we know, what Darwin did. Um, but let's just remind ourselves how much of an intellectual revolution he himself experienced in his life, particularly, in fact, in his London life, which is far more important to his uh, thinking than his, uh, his brief five weeks upon the Galapagos. There he was just a data gatherer. He didn't start writing up his thesis, as it were, and it took him about 40 years rather than the seven it took me to finish my PhD um, um, until he got back to London. So London, quite genuinely, is, was the intellectual hotbed that made Darwin um, what he was. He, clearly, on the Beagle, he had no notion, no real notion of evolution. For example, as I was in Australia uh, a few weeks ago, and Darwin has a great line in his diaries there. As he looks at the bizarre animals and plants of Australia, he suggested it was almost as if there were two separate creations. Now, if that, is a if that isn't a statement of anti-evolutionism, I don't know what is. Then, of course, he famously got to the Galapagos, and indeed, he didn't make many comments on the Galapagos about the possibility of change. There's a famous line, in, again, in his, in his diaries, where he landed on the island then called Albemarle, and he noted that the giant tortoises on, on Albemarle were smaller, darker, and had a sweeter taste when cooked than those on another island, which is a rather rare combination of taxonomy and gastronomy, which we haven't actually um, seen ever since. And then, of course, he came back to London in this famous sketch of the late 1830s, which everybody knows, which has, I think, was scribbled out. Uh, but in the middle of, of trying to persuade Camden Council to allow us to generate an enormous 60-foot-high version of that sketch on the front of the Darwin building in, uh, in, in, in gold, in, be in beaten gold, very thin gold, I have to tell you. And if we succeed in doing that, I hope that will really make, uh, 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 draw people's attention to the importance of Gower Street and of London in, uh, in, Darwin's, in Darwin's thinking. So what, what was Darwin's contribution? Well, it was, of course, enormous. Darwin in, Charles Darwin, in fact, invented a whole new science, a science called biology. Before the origin, there were plenty of absolutely first-rate scientists out there studying life, digging up fossils, breeding plants and animals, discovering new kinds of creature in remote places. So there was a huge amount of science going on. But none of them actually realized, until the origin, that they were all actually doing the same thing. They were all studying evolution. And that notion is so firmly embedded in modern biology that many modern biologists don't realize it themselves. But they are. Every time a young undergra an undergraduate does, uh, does a biological experiment, which nowadays, 99% of the time, simply involves pushing a button on a machine that goes ping, um, then they are basically doing evolutionary biology. When they sequence DNA and they compare human with chimp or with mouse DNA, they are, of course, doing evolution. So evolution pervades the whole of biology. I often think that if biology is a, lang is a, a language, then the theory of evolution is its grammar. You cannot learn a language unless you understand the way it's put together, either consciously, as if you learn a foreign language, or unconsciously if you're speaking your native language. It's the, it's the grammar that makes the language make sense. And that's what Darwin did. He made the science of life make sense. So that clearly is extraordinarily important. Um, I, a few years ago, had the rather eccentric scheme of uh, rewriting or updating 
the origin of species. About 20, year, 20 or 30 years ago, in fact, myself and some colleagues thought of writing a, a, a university-level textbook of evolutionary biology. And at that time, there really wasn't a good one. Uh, there are now several. But at that time, um, I had the, uh, the idea, well, we should do that. But what we should do is to write it using the structure of Darwin's long argument, which is what he called the origin, as if it were being written today. So myself and three or four considerably more distinguished biologists got together and started, started penciling in what we would put into this book. And it soon became clear, it was a bit like um, Borges' map in his short story, uh, where somebody draws a map of a South American country, which is big, it's as big as the whole country. It covers the whole country. Um, of course, it's an extraordinarily detailed map. Um, had we done that at the, at the academic level, the book would not have been um, a textbook. It would have been a shelf of uh, extremely solid and boring um, technical works. And that, of course, is what Darwin spent much of the rest of his life doing. He published 19 books altogether, not just the origin, and many of them are, I have to say, I shouldn't say in this gathering, many of them are somewhat, um, shall we say, dry, but all of them are extraordinarily important in the history of biology and indeed in modern biology. So we didn't do it as a textbook, but a few years later I started scribbling down the notion for a popular book based on that. And, um, and I, was, um, I make no particular claims for the merits of the book itself, but I was astonished, and I genuinely was astonished, how extraordinarily well Darwin's structure, the framework of the origin, stood up in the light of modern biology. It was a bit like the kind of thing that you see happening around this part of London quite often. I think it's actually happening just around the corner. I went for a, a stroll. In the 60s and 70s here, and I used to live down in the 70s, I used to live just a few hundred yards from here, um, there were a number of buildings of quite spectacular vileness were thrown up, as you will remember, um, in this very beautiful part of town, uh, covered in cheap concrete and uh, grubby glass windows. And what's happening to several of them now, I notice, is actually their facades are being taken off off, and the steel frame remains, and people are making them nice and, nice and post-modernist by bolting on a bit of false Georgian architecture or, um, and making them fit in rather better with, the, with, the, uh, with their surroundings. And that's basically what I felt like when I was writing Almost Like a Whale, which is my Origin of Species book. The steel framework was Darwin. The facade was mine. And it was astonishing that you could bring in the most recent de developments in evolution of viruses, say, or in brain science, and it slotted in quite neatly into the Darwinian logic. So Darwin really had the most astonishing ability to predict the way that biology was going to go. Well, since then I've become... I tell all my students in their first lecture, too, of the horrors of plagiarism, that they really shouldn't be... Uh, they shouldn't steal work from the Internet and present it as their own. And I tell them about uh, little computer programs we've got that are supposed to, they're supposed to uh, pick that up. Um, we don't need a computer program. I was just marking an, an essay the other day by a 19-year-old student which said, as I said in my 1968 paper, um, <laughs> so you don't really need a computer. But I always feel a bit embarrassed when I'm giving them this dire warning because, of course, I then became a serial plagiarist, and for the next 20 years or 15 years, I spent in rewriting the rest of Charles Darwin's works, um, Barnacles and Coral Reefs, and my most recent book has got the earthworms and all that kind of stuff in it. And it was quite astonishing what, um, what he was able to do. And it was astonishing the way that when you're talking about um, human evolution, let's say, you can actually illustrate the principles by looking at the evolution of HIV. It's astonishing, and Darwin astonished the world, by um, investigating the possible 
dangers of inbreeding, and as we all know, he married his own cousin and was very concerned that that might harm his children. Uh, what did he do? He actually went out and looked at inbreeding in flowers. Um, there was no, in his mind, there was no barrier between the rules that control the sexual life of flowers and the rules that control the sexual life of humans, which is why, in fact, I'm, I have this rather bizarre honor of opening the Chelsea Flower Show tomorrow. Um, but there is a limit, and Darwin saw that limit, and many people saw that limit um, when it comes to using Darwinism to explain ourselves. Um, in some senses, that's where Darwin does not matter. Uh, Gilbert and Sullivan... Uh, in, uh, in, in Princess Ida, a few years after the origin, came out with a deathless line, Darwinian man, though well-behaved, is nothing but a monkey shaved. Okay. Now, I can see we're shaved monkeys, all of us in here. Some of us are a bit more shaved than others, as I cast my eyes around the room. Um, and clearly, in some senses, that's true. If we look at ourselves and chimpanzees, we share about now about 95% of our DNA. And rather interestingly, if we look at our own physical structure in relation to that of chimpanzees, we can see many changes, and some of the most striking ones are actually those of decay. Many of the genes that work in chimpanzees don't work in us. Uh, chimpanzees smell much better than we do, in the sense that they have much better organs of scent than we do. Um, they are much stronger than we are. I don't know whether any, any among you have ever picked up a young chimpanzee. It's rather a frightening experience. Uh, that's because the genes that make their muscle proteins, particularly the ones that uh, work in the jaw, and you do not want to be bitten by a chimpanzee, uh, our versions have, have broken down and uh, simply far less effective than they were. Um, and that's largely, I think, because the site of human evolution or human change has moved. It's moved from body to mind, which isn't to say, of course, that the brain is not the, is not the product of evolution. Of course it is. But once you move from simple physical evolution to the evolution of ideas, then really you begin to see the limits of what Darwinism can tell you. There's... Um, one of the odd things, actually, about human physical evolution is how little of it there has been since modern humans first appeared. I have the rather dubious distinction now of living not in charming Bloomsbury, but in considerably less charming Camden Town. And uh, if I were to get on, as I did this morning, at the tube, on the tube at Camden Town tube station, and a Cro-Magnon man was to come and sit next to me, I probably wouldn't notice. Um, he might be covered in mud and grunting, but this is Camden Town, after all. Um, that's, about par, that's about par for the course. Um, there are plenty of people who look extremely prehistoric lurching around the tube station. Um, but, of course, from the Cro-Magnon's man's point of view, or woman's point of view, it would be a completely astonishing experience traveling at speed underground, um, people twittering to each other and uh, reading large leaves in front of their faces. Um, from their point of view, they'd be, almost be on a new planet, Physically, though, they, that them, they and us are almost the same. So that almost, almost everything that's interesting that's happened to us is in some senses post-Darwinian. Many socio sociologists, though, I think have failed to notice that. Um, uh, there's a whole science of human sociobiology, which is easy to mock, so I keep mocking it, uh, which explains the whole, every human attribute, marriage, society, crime, music, poetry, love, laughter, the lot, in Darwinian terms. It's what I call arts faculty science. It's a wonderful pastime. You have wonderful and marvelous ideas, and you don't need any evidence. Darwin would have hated that. Darwin had a statement in his autobiography, my mind has become a kind of machine to grind general laws out of great collections of facts. And Darwin depended on facts. He didn't depend on opinions. And this is what 
Neo-Darwinism, social Darwinism, sociobiology depends entirely on, or almost entirely on, is the fertile imagination of those who write the papers. Of course, it is the case that we owe something of our nature, our being, our society, to our ancestors, to our ancestry. Um, the example I, often, I always give is the, the worst punishment you can inflict on somebody, apart from hanging or electrocuting them as a criminal, is to put them into solitary confinement. And uh, that's widely done in the United States. There are something like 10,000 American prisoners who are in solitary confinement. Um, Masawi, on Masawi, who was condemned to solitary conf confinement uh, um, a few months ago, he, one of the alleged 9-11 um, plotters, he was told by the judge, you will never speak again and you will die with a whimper. Um, he won't die with a whimper. He'll die with a scream because he will certainly go mad as everybody put into, into solitary confinement always does. And that's, of course, a statement of our evolutionary past because we descend from social primates, from creatures we, which are not dissimilar, were not dissimilar probably, to today's chimpanzees. And to be taken away from that drives us very quickly to our wit's end. Had we descended from an ancestor shared with a much more solitary primate, like, let's say, the orangutan, the worst punishment you could give anybody would be to send them to a dinner party. Um, I think I've been to those dinner parties. Um, but in some senses, uh, there is some biology in what makes us what we are. However, most of what makes us what we are is unique. And uh, in terms of a sense of the past, in terms of language, a sense of the future, a sense of responsibility to those who aren't our immediate relatives, all these things are unique. Evolution is overwhelmingly a comparative science. It is not very good at all at understanding things that are unique. I can illustrate that and end up with a, perhaps the world's only Darwinian joke. It may not be. No, I know two or three others, each of which is equally feeble. Um, a, a joke that goes back to this notion of, Darwin, of ev evolution as the grammar of biology, of evolution as a language. It's actually a joke my father told me many years ago, and he didn't actually realize that uh, it had any evolution, Darwinism in it, but it definitely does. Um, I'm actually speaking my second language at the moment because my first language is, or at least was, Welsh, and I was brought up in West Wales and Aberystwyth, um, a very Welsh-speaking town then in the 1950s, uh, which it still is as long as there are English people in the room. Um, <coughs> and um, my um, father told me the joke about the Aberystwyth's only Chinese restaurant where somebody goes in and uh, serves a very nice Chinese meal by a clearly Chinese waiter who speaks perfect Welsh. And uh, the uh, customer is amazed, so he beckons over the owner. And in Welsh, he says to the owner, well, boy, he says, where do you get this amazing fellow from? A Chinese who can speak perfect Welsh. And the owner looks a bit startled and said, oh, keep your voice down, boy, oh, he thinks he's learned English. <laughs> and that actually, I think, is a summary of the limits of Darwinism. Because everything that makes us what we are, we have no standard of comparison for. We only know that Welsh and English are um, relatively close to each other because Chinese is so distant. And to a Chinese speaker, Welsh and English are dialects of the same language. Uh, that's an evolutionary statement. We have something to compare the languages with. And we can make a history of language. We can even date the dates at which they may have split. For everything that makes us human, um, I think we can't do that. But for everything that makes us animals, Darwin matters more than anything else. Thank you. So we've discovered something of why Darwin still matters. We've discovered something of London as it was in Darwin's time. And now we need to get stuck into Darwin himself. Um, 
I'm delighted to say our next speaker is uh, perfectly suited to tell us about Darwin's work. John Van Wy is a historian of science at the University of Cambridge and the founder and the director of Darwin Online, a fantastic resource. If you haven't come across it, then I can highly recommend it. In this year, John's publishing two major contributions to Darwin's scholarship with Cambridge University Press. Uh, one, Darwin, Charles Darwin's Shorter Publications, 1829 to 1883. And secondly, Charles Darwin's Notebooks from the Voyage of the Beagle. Uh, he's recently published Darwin, um, a lavishly illustrated overview of Darwin's life and work, and another book, Darwin in Cambridge. So for those of you who want to know about Darwin somewhere else, Darwin in Cambridge gives an insight into his relationship there. And I'm very pleased to say that John's going to tell us this morning about what was Darwin doing in London. John. Thank you. Thanks very much. And uh, it's a great pleasure to be here today. Um, I was a bit worried about uh, turning up today because I saw that the event was advertised on the website as not suitable for children. Uh, but I haven't seen anything too alarming so far. Um, well, let's, let, before we can talk about Darwin in London, I think we need to first put him in, into some biographical context and start at the beginning. So in the beginning, Charles Darwin was born in 1809 in this house, the Mount in Shrewsbury, in the middle of England, to a very wealthy family. His father was a physician. And at a young age, in 1825, he was sent to study medicine in Edinburgh for two years. But he didn't much like the study of medicine. He couldn't bear the sight of blood or, or the sight of suffering. So he, uh, his father proposed instead that he become a clergyman. And in order to become a clergyman in the Church of England, you had to get a BA degree from an English university. So Edinburgh was out and Cambridge was in. Hooray! This is Christ College, where Darwin was a student between 1828 and 1831. And he did not study theology there, as is very often repeated. He was registered for an ordinary BA degree. Uh, after receiving his BA degree, he could have undertaken divinity training, but he never did that. Uh, oh, and one of the other things I've been lucky enough to be involved with this year is the restoration of Darwin's actual rooms at Christ. I've just brought a sneak peek with me today. This is what they look like today. And they're open to the public... Uh, for this year only. So if you're interested in Darwin, I strongly encourage you to have a look. Now, instead of undertaking divinity training, Darwin instead went on the voyage of the Beagle, which sailed around the world on a surveying voyage, but spent most of its time in the southern half of South America. And Darwin spent most, about 70% of the voyage on land, uh, investigating the geology and zoology of the countries visited. And when he was doing this, he had one of these... 15 pocket field notebooks with him. There, this is one of the books that I'm bringing out later this year. This is the most famous one, which is not actually a field notebook. It's called the Red Notebook. And the interesting thing about the Red Notebook is it's brown. <laughs> That's a mystery for somebody to figure out uh, in the future. Now, m mostly Darwin was a geologist during the voyage of the Beagle. And these notebooks contain uh, a rich collection of geological sketches. But Darwin was also notoriously uh, not very artistic. Uh, he couldn't draw very well. And what I'm about to show you is something you will have never seen before. It is the only known self-portrait of Charles Darwin. And it's in one of these notebooks. This is it. There he is. <laughs> That's Darwin as a stick man. 
on, uh, this is on the cliffs of St. Helena in, in the Atlantic Ocean, and he noticed that the air around him was completely still and motionless, but just beyond the cliff over the sea, a seabird was struggling against strong winds, and he, he couldn't see how the, the wind wasn't, there was no wind. And only when he stuck his arm out over the cliff did he feel a strong updraft, and so he noted this down and drew this sketch to record it to himself, gale of wind to hand, not to man. And so he's drawn the wind. But unfortunately, he got the scale wrong, so he had to slightly stretch his arm out <laughs> in order to get it out over the coast. Now, historians have known for many years that Darwin, of course, the most famous part of the Voyage of the Beagle, is the uh, Galapagos. But we've known for over 20 years now that Darwin didn't have a eureka moment in the Galapagos Islands and, aha, suddenly come up with evolution on the spot. No, instead, it was, uh, it was after he came back home that he started to come up with his theory. First, he went to Cambridge, where he lived for three months, because all of his, all of his collections had been sent to London, uh, to Cambridge, and were kept there by Professor Henslow until his return. And Darwin w worked through the collections and started to prepare the uh, book now known as The Voyage of the Beagle. But unfortunately, uh, it was just essential that he had to traveled to London very often because that's where the scientific institutions and experts were who were studying and work, working on his collections and sorting them through. So Darwin realized that he had to move to London. So in March 1837, he had to move to London to be closer to these specialists and the societies discussing his collections, particularly the zoological and geological societies. And he would live here for five years. But he wasn't particularly keen on it. Just after the move, he wrote to his cousin, William Darwin Fox, It is a sorrowful, but I fear, too certain truth that no place is at all equal for aiding one in natural history pursuits to this odious, dirty, smoky town where one can never get, get a glimpse at all of that which is best worth seeing in nature. And this is a page from his uh, pocket diary, in which he recorded all, what he was working on written in London. And the first line there says, in July, open first notebook on transmutation of species had been greatly struck from about month of previous March on character of South American fossils and species on Galapagos archipelago. Now, it's a very famous passage. And of course, it's the most famous thing Darwin did in London was coming up with his theory. Um, as he recalled in his autobiography, in in July, I opened my first notebook for facts in relation to the origin of species, about which I had long reflected and never ceased working on for the next 20 years. During these two, first two years in London, I also went a, a little into society and acted as one of the honorary secretaries of the Geological Society, and I saw a great deal of Charles Lyell. And after years, Darwin was asked, what inspired you to come up with your theory? And in contrast to the, the modern legend that the Galapagos did it, Darwin always gave a list of three things. Uh, firstly, oops, I forgot to show you the sketch of his uh, theory in his notebook. Firstly, fossils. The relationship between the fossil and living things in South America. This struck him immediately, that he, he found the remains of extinct creatures that were unknown anywhere else in the world, that were immediately immediately it struck him that they resembled things that lived today only in South America. That was very puzzling. Why should that be? This is one case. The, the armor of the glyptodon reminded him of the bony plating of the modern armadillos. 
Secondly, geographical distribution. As he moved southwards down the continent of South America, he would notice that the range of one species would end and the range of a similar, almost cousin or allied species would begin. Why, why should there be this spatial relationship? It, the environment didn't seem to have caused it. He couldn't understand that. This is the most famous example, uh, the South American rayas. But actually, there were many other examples that, that Darwin discovered. Again, he didn't hit on a solution. They were puzzles that, that got him thinking. And only thirdly were the creatures on the Galapagos and their relationship to those on the South American mainland. And more curiously, why there were different varieties on different islands, and as he was told by the ornithologist John Gould once he arrived in London, different species, something that Darwin didn't know when he was in the Galapagos. In fact, the now famous Darwin's finches, Darwin didn't even know that most of them were finches. When he was in the Galapagos Islands, he thought they were loads of different kinds of birds. So in fact, they should be called London's finches, because it's only when Darwin gets back to London that he's told uh, the, the, this crucial information. Well, in January 1839, oops, I've, oh, I've skipped a slide. Well, there was supposed to be a picture of his, uh, uh, his wife, Emma, but I've, I've skipped her. Now, he, he married Emma, Emma Wedgwood, his first cousin, in January, and uh, he clearly told her about his incipient, incipient uh, theory of evolution. And indeed, it's clear that he told many others. This is a line from the sixth and final edition of The Order of Species, published in 1872, in which Darwin is trying to defend himself against the rather annoying criticism that, oh, why do you keep going on about, in this book, that uh, naturalists don't believe in evolution? We all do. You, you're exaggerating your originality. And he's saying, no, 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 that's not true. In the, in, when I first published this, the rest of you didn't believe in evolution. And to prove it, he says, I formally spoke to very many naturalists on the subject of evolution and never once met with any sympathetic agreement. So what Darwin was primarily doing in London was working on the materials from the Beagle voyage and his theory of evolution. But the theory of evolution was very much in the background, even though it's in the foreground of most people's interests about Darwin today. His first publication is this, the Journal of Researchers, more often known nowadays as the Voyage of the Beagle. This is the first edition published in 1839. It was based on the diary that he kept throughout the Voyage of the Beagle. But mostly he, he published more serious scientific works. Well, there's Emma. Her ghost is hopping around. Um, th this is the five volumes of the Zoology of the Voyage of the Beagle, published between 1838 and 1843. Each volume was written by a different expert on a different section of Darwin's collection. But Darwin superintended and edited and contributed to all of them. The first volume was by Richard Owen on the fossil mammalia gathered during the voyage of the Beagle. The second one was on mammals. The third was on birds. The next one was on fish. And the last one was on uh, reptiles and amphibians. But Darwin also attended many meetings and contributed to uh, many discussions during his time in London, because it was a particularly social time in his scientific career. He was constantly meeting other naturalists, discussing his ideas, and particularly his, his collections. He then went on to write and publish, between 1842 and 1846, three volumes on the geology of the Voyage of the Beagle, all written by himself, 
and each one of them a, a, a major contribution to the geology of the day. And these made a, a great name for, for Darwin as a geologist. The first volume was on his now famous theory of coral reefs, um, which to this day we, is still considered to be correct that the source of coral reefs is from the subsidence of the land underneath what was originally an island ringed with a, a fringing coral reef, and as the land disappeared underneath the waves, all that remained was an ever-upward-growing ring of coral. The next volume was on volcanic islands, in which Darwin overturned the then-current theories on the formation of volcanic islands. The third volume was on the geology of South America. Now I'm going to talk about a number of scientific papers that Darwin published, uh, scientific talks that he gave in London, which then became scientific papers. And these give, I think, a, a good overview. And um, of course, I can't mention all of them because Darwin published many papers during this time. But I think they give a good flavor of what Darwin was actually doing during his time in London and what was actually occupying his mind and what people who knew Darwin were aware of what he was doing. So at the end of May, 1837, not, not long after moving to London, he gave a paper to the Geological Society called On Certain Areas of Elevation and Subsidence in the Pacific and Indian Oceans as Deduced from the Study of Coral Formations. So this was connected with his Coral Reef book. And the conclusions to this paper are, are quite dramatic and sweeping. I'll just read Darwin's summary of his findings in this paper. First, that the linear spaces of great extent of, on the, of the globe are undergoing movements of an astonishing uniformity and that the bands of elevation and subsidence alternate Two, that the points of volcanic eruption all fall on the areas of global elevation. Three, that certain coral formations acting as monuments over subsided land, the geographical distribution of organic beings, as consequent on geological changes as laid down by Mr. Lyle, is elucidated by the discovery of former centers whence the germs could be disseminated. And fourthly, that some degree of light might thus be thrown on the question whether certain groups of living beings peculiar to small spots are the remnants of a, large, a former large population or a new one springing into existence. Now this is, as far as we know, Darwin's first public statement about his interest in the origin of species. And that's one year after the return of the voyage of the Beagle and right when he's simply coming up with the very beginnings of his theory of evolution. A couple of years later, he published his famous Glen Roy paper, about which he gets uh, a lot of stick nowadays because this is one of his big mistakes. Darwin imagined that the so-called parallel roads of Glen Roy were the result of the same kinds of geological forces he had studied and elucidated so brilliantly in South America and in, uh, across the Pacific, namely the repeated subsidence and elevation of the surface of the land. So Darwin argued that these parallel ridges or roads had sunk over 1,000 feet under the sea at successive periods and that these lines were the remains of marine beaches. And this paper was published in 1839. Unfortunately, uh, some decades later, it was, it was proved that actually the, these were the results of glacial lakes, that the valleys had been blocked up by glaciers. At the time Darwin was writing, this was an unimaginable power or force, and Darwin later regretted that he had relied on 
on the principle of exclusion, that because no other cause could be seen to be responsible, it must therefore be the one he was familiar with. The following year, he published a paper on volcanic phenomena. Now, one of the most, this is clearly one of the most important geological papers Darwin ever published. In it, he argued for the progressive, long-term changes happening in the geology of South America were due to incremental, non-catastrophic causes, and that there was a strong correlation between volcanic eruptions and earthquakes. Now, it's a very Lyleian paper showing that Darwin had not only adopted the views of his great geological mentor, Charles Lyell, but that he had uh, made far more progress in the study of the geology of South America than any, any previous geologist. In the same year, he published this curious little paper on the formation of mold, or what, what we would say on the formation of soil. And Darwin showed in this, in this brief paper that, um, again, the formation of soil was the, result, uh, was, was the result of very small, minute actions reiterated over a long period of time. As he wrote in the paper, although the conclusion may at first appear startling, it will be difficult to deny the prob probability that every particle of earth forming the bed from which the, the turf in an old uh, field springs, all of it has passed through the intestines of worms. And he went on to show that the worms not only aerated the soil, but also that they were actually pushing the surface of the land upwards, millimeter at a time. And he got down on his hands and knees and observed that between the leaves of the grass in the field he was investigating, little worm castings were spread across the surface of the ground. There wasn't two square inches without one these little worm castings, which was just pushed up a little bit. And Darwin realized that by the reiteration of these little worm castings being pushed up again and again and again, that they constantly elevated the soil that was small enough to pass through the guts of a worm, only that much higher up, and the rain would then settle it down a bit. And hence, pebbles and other objects that weren't too large or too deep settled down beneath them. And this was one of the causes for the, the uh, submerge, submergence of archaeological remains. But all of this, of course, became the theme of Darwin's last book over 40 years after this. Now, in 1841, he read this, this paper to the... Um, uh, sorry, I made another mistake on my slides. In 1841, he, he published this paper on a remarkable bar of sandstone in Brazil. And again, he had a, a reiterative process to explain part of this story, which was, why was this remarkable bar of sandstone, this is a cross-section of it, why wasn't it eroded by the sea long ago? Surely it should have been. And Darwin believed that the accretion of marine organisms constantly growing on the front of this uh, sandbar were, were actually protecting it from the erosion of the sea so that they were taking the beating and, and being eroded themselves but growing back at a, a, a sufficient rate to stop the erosion of the sandbar, which is a, a similar theory to his uh, solution to the, the coral reef problem, which is the combination of geological and zoological forces Small changes reiterated over a long time producing a great effect. In this case, a mile-long uh, bar of sandstone that didn't, didn't go away, even though it, it presumably should have. Well, 
1841, Darwin wrote a, a paper to the Geological Society in which he defended his and Lyell's view that floating ice transported boulders far from their native formations rather than uh, – this was in opposition to Louis Agassiz's recent glacier theory that glaciers were pushing boulders around, and that's how isolated boulders ended up far away from their native formations. And Darwin was ac actually quite enamored with this idea of floating ice – and he developed a number of theories which didn't stand the test of time to, explain, to, to stick by his, his uh, favorite theory that floating ice must be responsible. And one of the papers was about a, a boulder that had been seen in an iceberg out at sea. This is absolutely delighted Darwin because finally someone had actually seen what he had been uh, speculating about. In another instance, he tried to counteract Agassiz's description of parallel scratches in rocks as being the result of the slow motion of glaciers over the landscape, Darwin thought, well, this too could also be explained by floating icebergs. And he combined his other geological theories with the icebergs to put together this theory, which was that the scratches could have been caused by the icebergs moving back and forth in the sea, pelted by the waves. And if the land were elevated or subsided, an additional series of parallel lines would also be created. So the land would go up, and there'd be more scratches up, etc. thus giving the identical appearance to what Agassiz said you would get from glaciers streaking across the landscape and creating these parallel lines. It's just another example uh, that Darwin didn't always get it right and often wouldn't uh, give up on, on, on a pet theory uh, once he'd set his mind to it. Now, this is another paper that Darwin published in 1842 on the distribution of erratic boulders. Uh, again, trying to promote his iceberg theory. Now, in addition to all of these papers on geology, Darwin spoke at uh, numerous scientific societies in, in London and published other contributions on, on other things that he had collected on the voyage of the Beagle, including birds, insects, and spiders, uh, papers on the, the recent elevation of Chile and the, and the proof that uh, the coast of Chile had been elevated recently, fossil mammals, Pacific Island plants, edible fungi from uh, South America, signing a petition for the purchase of fossils by the British Museum, and uh, also signing a, a petition and contributing to a list of questions on human races sent out as a, called a, a questionnaire on anthropology. And then, of course, he wrote his first of many letters to the Gardener's Chronicle in 1841. And this one was on humblebees. And for, for many decades, Darwin kept up his, his interest in and his, his contributions to, uh, to this delightful, and as some people have called it, Darwin's favorite periodical. So this is what Darwin is working on in the foreground during his time in London. This is Darwin's public science. But all the while in the background, he's working on his theory of evolution. He's reading, he's talking to people, he's taking notes, and he continues working on it even after he leaves London. So by 1842, Darwin decides he's ready to write up a sort of rough sketch of his theory uh, in just about 20 pages in pencil. And this he leaves for another couple of years. He finishes a couple more of these books on geology. And during a gap in one of them, after he sent it to the publisher, he writes up a longer version of his theory in 230 pages. But again, 
It's a rough draft. He doesn't have any of his notes with him. He has none of his books. And it's something not intended for publication. Uh, yet, in recent years, it's very often demanded, well, why didn't he publish that? It's really good, actually. Uh, well, Darwin himself never considered that very, very good, or he never considered it publishable. And one, one part of the confusion on this issue is that Darwin wrote a letter to his wife, Emma, saying, I've just finished this rough sketch of my species theory, and uh, I think it's very important, and if something should happen to me, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the, the version one, u- one usually hears of this story is that Darwin said, when I die, publish this, or I would rather be dead than publish this, or some such rendition. But actually, this memo to his wife doesn't say that at all. What it says is, this is the rough sketch of my theory. It's very important, but it's not publishable. And in order to make it publishable, a lot more work is needed. So please devote as much as 500 pounds to uh, interest a qualified editor to do all the work necessary of putting this into a publishable condition. And in order to do that, he will need all of my books and all of my notes because this needs considerable enlargement and work. And then he provided a list of various people he thought were qualified, all of whom were not evolutionists, but all of whom knew Darwin believed in evolution. Only if all of those things failed, he said, then have it published, but with a note saying this was never intended to be published in its current condition. And many years afterwards, when Darwin was in the midst of writing up his great species book, he was about halfway through what would have been a a three-volume Victorian table crusher full of footnotes and facts, he gets the surprise letter from Alfred Russell Wallace outlining a, a remarkably similar theory. And they publish a joint, a published Two papers by the two men are published for them in the Journal of the Linnaean Society in 1858. Then Darwin is urged by his friends, oh, come on, we know the outline now. Can you just give us an overview of your theory in the meantime? Because your, your big book, it's still years away. We can't wait. Please, give us an overview. So Darwin doesn't go back and use that 1844 sketch. He still considers it unpublishable. So instead of publishing it, he spends 13 grueling months writing The Origin of Species, which was published in 1859. And on the first page, Darwin told his readers the story of writing this book. He says, on on the voyage of HMS Beagle as naturalist, I was much struck by what I had seen in South America, etc., and then on my return home, it occurred to me that by collecting facts, etc., on this subject, something could be made up on this. And so in 1837, I opened a notebook on this subject, which we now know, yep, that's true, he did. And then he goes on to say that after a few years, he speculated on this, i.e., he wrote the 20-page document in 1842, and this I enlarged into a, a, a larger sketch or draft in 1844. And from that day to the present, I have steadily pursued the same object. So Darwin told his readers on the first page of The Origin of Species, I thought of this a long time ago. That's probably to stake out his priority. Why not? Mr. Wallace has just published a joint paper with him. I started working on this 20 years ago, and I've prepared various drafts of it. And from that period to the present day, I'm still working on it. In fact, then he goes on to say at the end of the first page, but my big book on this subject still isn't finished, and it will be a few years before it is. Therefore, in the meantime, I'm providing you with this overview, an overview with no footnotes. So it would have been interesting 
to see what would have happened if Wallace hadn't written Darwin that, that letter. Now, it's often claimed that if Wallace hadn't sent that letter to Darwin, he never would have published. But I think that's nonsense. He's already halfway through a very big book on the subject. He's devoted himself full-time to writing this. He's writing chapter after chapter after chapter. And now, if you consider what would have happened if the letter from Wallace didn't arrive and Darwin had continued working at the same rate that he had been working for the last few years and on the number of subjects that he eventually covered in The Origin of Species, you can project forwards how long Darwin would have taken to complete that book and you can, examine, you can consider the, re the estimate that Darwin gives on the first page of The Origin, which he says it would take me two or three more years to finish the big book, which he's now taken leave of for 13 months. Anyway, so if you do both of these, you get the same s conclusion, which is that Darwin would have published his theory of evolution around 1860 or 1861. So rather than saying, uh, oh, if it weren't for Wallace, Darwin never would have published, no. Uh, Wallace made a difference of a couple of years, which is a rather different version of events, I think, than, than the usual one. So Darwin, after 1842, he left London, although he did return on numerous occasions. He came to stay with his brother. He came for scientific meetings. And uh, a couple of occasions, he and his ever-growing family came and rented a house to stay in London for a holiday, to see friends and, and relatives, visit museums. And it, but it was always down, down village in Kent that remained his home for, for the rest of his life. And he died, in, he died there in 1882. And he always believed he would be buried in the churchyard there. But... Uh, as we heard already this morning, that didn't work out. And uh, various measures were put in motion to bring the great man's remains back to London. And they were interred in Westminster Abbey in April 1882, where they remain to this day. So although Darwin only lived five consecutive years in London and stayed a few odd weeks and months here at various other times of his life, London was obviously a crucial place in his life. I would, of course, also argue that Cambridge was a crucial part of his life as well. Uh, not that I'm biased. <laughs> but Cambridge and London are both uh, very fundamental places for Darwin because he undergoes great biographical and scientific transformations in his thinking and in his scientific contacts. And we'll be hearing later from Jim Mendesby about the scientific colleagues, the friends and foes that Darwin had in London. Because London was really the, the scientific epicenter of Victorian Britain. And that's why Darwin wanted to be here. He had to be here in the first place for his beagle collections, his mountains of thousands upon thousands of specimens. Here were the experts who alone could identify what he had found and tell him what he had found. He didn't know that they, the finches on the Galapagos were all finches, etc. How could he have known indeed? Because without access to a worldwide collection on the Galapagos Islands, all he knew was that he had gone to these islands and found some finches, or various birds, unlike those he had seen in South America. Without a worldwide collection, it wasn't possible for Darwin to establish what John Gould later established, which was these species exist nowhere else, only on the Galapagos. Now, Darwin suspected this when it, at the time, but it was only when he got back to London that the expertise and the collections and the museums were here that made this possible. And similarly with the identification of the fossils that he had collected when Richard Owen identified these. So the big three that I mentioned earlier on that were behind the, the big three uh, types of evidence that kick-started Darwin into thinking about evolution and to come up with this theory of descent with modification 
all of them depended, in fact, on his time in London. The fossils had to be identified here. Only here did Darwin, was Darwin told, yes, well, this, this creature that you found that you had no idea what it was, it, at first he was told this was an extinct giant llama, although Richard Owen changed his mind on that. But that, that at first got Darwin thinking, aha, an extinct llama found only where llamas exist today. Curious puzzle. Then the, the distribution of modern species, living species, the rayas. Only when Darwin got back to London did John Gould identify the second type, the second variety of a rare as a second species. And similarly with the Galapagos flora and fauna. It was only when he got back home that other experts were able to identify for him what these things are. What he did notice in the Galapagos Islands were that the mockingbirds were actually different on different islands. This he actually noted at the time and did write down in his notes while he was there. But uh, again, we still have no evidence that this caused any kind of eureka moment. He just noticed that there were different mockingbirds on different islands. It was over a year after this, after the trip to the Galapagos, as the Beagle is returning home, after their stop in South Africa, Darwin was writing up condensed and clearly written sets of notes to go with each of his collections, because the collections, the fossils, the birds, the reptiles, etc., would all be given to a different expert once he got home to identify. And to go with that, each one of these would be a set of notes corresponding, telling them where he collected them, what colors they were, and that sort of thing. And it's in that document for the birds, Darwin's ornithological notes, that we have the first written evidence of Darwin's doubting about the stability of species. And it was in reference to the mockingbirds. But, but an, and it's a very a widely quoted passage where Darwin says that uh, if these are indeed different varieties on different islands, such facts uh, would make the study of archipelagos very interesting because such facts, if true, would undermine the stability of species. Well, the interesting thing about that, that lovely quote is that it's written in a document intended to be given to someone else. It's not a private document, and indeed was given to someone else. So after Darwin's death in 1882, uh, an unprecedented number of obituaries and other publications appeared summarizing his life, starting for the first time to tell the story of Charles Darwin's life. Who was Charles Darwin? What, what has he done? And the amazing thing about these is how consistent they are, despite the fact that they were written by many different people around the world in many different languages before the advent of standard Darwin biographies. So the people who wrote these didn't have common sources to go to on this, the life of Charles Darwin, they relied on their own experience because they, had, they were Darwin's contemporaries. They had lived through Darwin's life. They had witnessed the publication of his books. They had presumably read some of them. Uh, so these people all based their, their writings on their own experiences. And the amazing thing is that he's described in almost all of them as a naturalist without parallel who had ushered in uh, a revolution, is the word they very often use in these obituaries, a revolution in our understanding of the world that Darwin has changed the world forever. And he was compared to Newton or, or, or etc. And the, the, the thing that's sadly forgotten in the, in the story of Darwin nowadays is that what happened after the origin of species wasn't that we had a great conflict of science and religion. We now know that that's, that's uh, another myth. But that within 20 years of the publication of the origin of species, the debate was basically over. The international scientific community 
had accepted Darwin was right and evolution was a fact. Natural selection was still not always accepted, although I think it was more widely accepted than we, than we often hear, but that remains to be seen. So Darwin's contemporaries, having experienced the, the extraordinary career of this young man who came back from the Voyage of the Beagle, who filled these mu our museums with wonderful collections, who gave extraordinary papers, who made a, a great reputation for himself as an amiable and intelligent young man, publishing on a huge range of subjects, then retired off at a young age to London to raise his family and to continue to churn out uh, a range of promising books. And then, and then he published The Origin of Species. So, of course, unlike today, where most people only remember Darwin for The Origin of Species, for his contemporaries, he was a, a much broader man who published on a much broader range of, of theories. So the short answer to the question, what was Darwin doing in London, would be mostly working very hard at his scientific pursuits and, po and possibly studying a wider range of subjects than uh, any other comparable period in his life. And if you'd like to find out more about Mr. Darwin, you can visit his new website, which contains his complete <laughs> publications. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much indeed, John. Now, the pre-lunched session is always a difficult one. Finding somebody who can talk in that grim 40 minutes before people head off for their sandwiches is always a challenge. We tend to give it to our most ebullient speaker, and today is no different. Um, Joe Kane is senior lecturer in the history and philosophy of biology at University College London. He's an expert in the history of evolutionary biology, especially Darwin and Darwinism. His forthcoming publications include a new edition of Darwin's The Expression of Emotions in Man and Animals and a collection of essays on the new um, trends in the history of Darwinism called Descended from Darwin. Um, Joe has been a friend of mine for a long time. He's not someone crippled by shyness uh, when it comes to speaking in public. I think he will give us a lively talk, talking about Darwin in London, Homes and Haunts. Joe. All right. Well, there you go. Um, I want to start the talk by just asking everybody to stand up, please. Just stand up, please. Just stand up, please. And now just stretch a bit, because you should. <laughs> just stretch a bit, and then when you're done stretching, just have a quick seat. Um, now everybody should have that yellow piece of paper. Just pull that out as you come to sit down. And uh, I think the organizers also have an A3 version of that, so if your eyesight isn't as strong as it might have been at one point, just raise your hand and I think they'll get that around. Does anybody want that A3 version of this map? The, the, do the organizers actually have it? There you go. Just keep your hands up. We'll get them to you as we go. It is so hard to follow John and stand between you and sandwiches at the same time. My wife said, just be quick. <laughs> Which I, I sadly won't be, but there you have it. All right. Uh, this, the, the map that you see in front of you is the map that you should have, and I'll mention those as I go along. Now, tell me, who's a London person? Who fancies yourself a London person? Also, raise your hand, too. Ah, uh, yeah, okay, I knew a bunch of you would be here. Well done. Uh, we're going to walk around London, and uh, uh, I want to point out the goal of my talk, really, is to talk about places, quite specifically 
places. Now, remember, keep your hands up now if, you, if you're looking for an A3 version of that map. They're bringing them around. They'll, they'll get the it's, the white, it's the white A3 version. There's a couple more down front. and all, all. They're getting more. Oh, good golly. I've underestimated more than 30 of you uh, need them. Just, just hold on. We'll get them uh, to you. Uh, but yeah, the goal of today is to look at places, physical places here in London, and um, uh, places that connect to Darwin. And I wanted to start off with a bit of a quiz. So if you've been paying attention this morning, uh, you should know the answer to at least a few of these. So the question that I, that I have for you, and I would like you to yell it out, the yell out what you think the answer is. Uh, the, connection is uh, the question is, what's the connection to Darwin of the places that I indicate? Um, here's, here's one example. Uh, does anybody recognize this place? You see how easy this is? Excellent. And the connection to Darwin is? Hey, well done. So we've had mentioned three times, yes, that uh, god-awful plaque to Darwin that's there along with the slab uh, of him. That's the connection to Darwin, of course. He's buried in Westminster Abbey. No extra biscuit for you if you got that one. That just means you've been paying attention. Here's another one slightly that's not been mentioned today. Um, the, connection to, first, the connection to Darwin is what you should be thinking about. First of all, where is this place? Does anybody... Oh, see, I thought this was going to be hard. Well done, you. Highgate Cemetery, of course, Marx is buried there, and, and everyone goes there to, to uh, stand in front of Marx. This is on, on Marx's birthday, a bunch of old Soviet types showing up, uh, drinking vodka and saluting the, saluting the man. Um, right, and what's the connection to Darwin, then? Uh, certainly, yeah, certainly Marx sent dust capital to Darwin. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not clear if Darwin read it or dealt with it. I, I was thinking about something else. Not... Follow the RSA. Oh, that's not what I was thinking, but yeah, maybe, yeah. So I heard the answer, so I'm just going to run to it like a, like a dog to a bone. So, so please forgive me. Yeah, if, you, if you're standing there to take this photograph and you look behind you, uh, you're standing on uh, Spencer's uh, grave, which is a bit ironic, but there you go. Uh, and uh, so the Marks and Spencer jokes you guys can make at lunch. That's perfectly fine. Uh, there, there's another connection to uh, Highgate Cemetery and, and London, and that is uh, this fellow who you'll be drinking near, near his, his uh, museum tonight, uh, Robert Grant. Of course, Grant is buried in Highgate Cemetery as well. Uh, as Now, there's water here. I, I'd like to drink it. Um, uh, and Robert Grant's buried, buried in Highgate Cemetery as well, the professor of zoology, first professor of zoology at UCL, the transmutationist Robert Grant, the student of Parisian natural history, uh, tutor to Darwin at Edinburgh, and so many other things. Right, so if you've got two, you're doing pretty well. Uh, you're heading towards extra biscuits at lunchtime. Here's another one, slightly more tangential. What's the connection to Darwin? Upper Gower Street, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that later. Upper Gower Street's near Euston Station. Darwin loved to ride the trains. The Euston Terminus opened in 1837, uh, just around the corner from Upper Gower Street, and Darwin loved to ride the trains. So he would walk through what now is remembered as the Euston Arch, or the, or the screen, as I like to, I like to think of it. And, it. and it's certainly the case that the train station to Euston uh, is that building there in between the, in between the, the uh, columns of the arches. And uh, this is the inside of the terminus, uh, roughly, uh, from about this period of time. And, and it's certainly the case that coming down from Camden Town 
into where now Houston Station is, the Houston, uh, Houston Grove Terminus. I'll just give you a sense of that, of the Houston Station at the time. Ran six trains a day in the first year. You'd go from London to Birmingham, which was the terminus ultimately. Uh, in January 1839, the month that Darwin was married, 36,000 people traveled uh, on the line, including Darwin and, and Emma, on their wedding night because they wanted to get home to Upper Gower Street for their wedding uh, evening. And uh, uh, something that most people don't know is that the, there is a slight hill uh, between Euston Station and Camden Town, which is sort of the, on, on the way out of the, of the tracks. And uh, the, the locomotives weren't strong enough to pull the cars. So the way they, they ran it was at Camden Town, they would they'd detach the locomotive and then push the, the carriages, the open carriages down, and you'd ride roller coaster down into Euston Station uh, with the brakemen standing between you and oblivion, uh, really. And then a... Then a um, more than a mile-long rope was brought down from Chalk Farm to connect to the end of the train and then haul you up, uh, back up to Camden, where they attached the locomotive. Again, so this scene, I love this scene because you can well imagine on, on a day like your wedding day, riding the roller coaster from, from Camden Town down into Houston Terminus uh, with your beloved, wondering what on earth is going on here. Uh, but, of course, the, this, this was torn down uh, much later, and the current Houston station built around 1960 going to be refurbished shortly. So, so Houston Station, what's the connection to Darwin? Darwin loved the train, and he sure rode that train a lot. Uh, uh, some of the Darwin scholars now talk about Darwin as being a high-tech, gadgety kind of guy, and this would certainly match uh, that. So, so, so that's number three, right? You guys still with me? Yeah? Okay, well done. Good, good. Thinking biscuits, thinking sandwiches. Good, okay. Uh, the next thing, what's the connection to Darwin? What's the connection to Darwin? What's the connection to Darwin? Don't say he swam in the river. First of all, where is this? Times Barrier. Well done, you. What's the connection to Darwin? Lots of fish. Subsidence? No. This is, in fact, my trick question. There is no connection to Darwin. So there you go. Just, you know, just keep us a sharp right. Okay, next one, next one. Let's be fair. This is number five on your, on your map. Um, uh, first of all, what is this place? The Linnaean Society, it's not the V&A. It, it, it is the, the Linnaean Society, the Geological Society, Burlington House, all the same thing. Royal Academy of Arts, yes, definitely, you've got that. There's the entrance, of course, Geological Society on this side, Linnaean Society on this side. Um, this is number five on your, on your map, as I said. Now, you'd be forgiven if you thought that there was a strong connection to Darwin to this building. Uh, that, would, that would be false um, because this physical building is part of the range of Burlington House that was built at the end of the 1860s and into the early 1870s. So not strong connection to Darwin uh, at all, really. If anything, Darwin's borrowing by post from the libraries of these institutions that, at that time when that was built. Um, the real connection to the scientific societies is this place. No, where is this? So it's the ice skating gives it away, doesn't it? Yeah, Somerset House. Yeah, now Somerset House in the 
1830s and 1840s when Darwin is living in London and making use of London, as, as, as John said and as, as Jim and others will say later, that he, he, Somerset House is the home of the learned societies really in the 1830s and 40s. The Royal Society had been there for more than 50 years. The Linnaean Society is there. The Geological Society had been there for about 10 years. This is the place where Darwin uh, goes to those scientific meetings when he does attend them. Uh, for uh, as John said, Darwin's elected um, uh, to the Geological Society in 1836. He's elected to the Royal Society in 1839. He's elected to the Linnaean Society actually much later than this in the, in the 1850s, and I'll mention that too. So Somerset House is the answer. What's the connection to Darwin? That's where the scientific societies were in Darwin's working time here in London. Uh, now back to Burlington House, back to, I'm, I'm sorry, Somerset House was number six on your map, if that, if you, if you didn't, didn't know that already, number six. I spent a lot of time putting that map together yesterday, so I might as well use it. The, uh, uh, back to number five, back to Burlington House. Uh, this is the house of Burlington House, which is a, originally was a uh, 17th century uh, manor home and then covered, uh, uh, built upon in, in many different ways. And those ranges that become what now are the antiquaries, uh, the Ge Geological Society, Linnaean Society, and others, those were added, in, as I said, at the end of the 1860s. Uh, and it is in this corner here where the famous Darwin Wallace papers were read. Um, and the, the story goes like this. The government bought... The government bought Somerset House um, around in, in the at the very beginning of the 19th century for public use for public service, and the learned societies moved into Somerset House. Then uh, they quickly outgrew Somerset House, and the government bought um, Burlington House in the 1850s uh, for public use, and the learned societies were essentially shifted there very quickly. The very quickly, the Linnaean Society and the uh, Royal Society moved there. So 1854-ish is when they moved uh, into this building here. So the Royal Society and the Linnaean Society is here. And that's why in 1858, when the, Royal so where, when the uh, papers are read at the Linnaean Society, uh, they're in this room here. In fact, has anybody been to this room in, at Burlington House? You'll see a blue plaque, or not a blue plaque, you'll see a, a gray, ugly plaque to uh, the Darwin and Wallace um, uh, papers presented here, which were the meeting rooms uh, in the Ro of the Royal Society here. So uh, th that's two. That's two locations. Number five and number six. The number five is Burlington House. The connection to Darwin. You'd be forgiven for thinking that it's the meeting rooms of the Linnaean Society where Darwin gave his. Uh, the Darwin Wallace papers were read. It's actually uh, in the in the big house, as they as they call it. Right. Now, one of the things that John said, and, and I think Jim will say later, and, and something important in, in Darwin's time in London is that he's building a professional life for himself. Uh, I like to think of it as schmoozing, uh, but I'm not an intellectual person, so that's eating biscuits for me. And you can, you can see it paying off. So here's the journal researches that, that one, one part of the journal researches that John was talking about, and Darwin's name here, but let me just expand that image of his authorship. And it's here, I think, where you see the social connections um, projected from Darwin's point of view. He's reminding you uh, in, a, in a particular way that, yes, he's a gentleman. Yes, he's been 
had a university degree, but he's also a fellow of the Royal Society, and he's connected to the Geological Society. So when you talk about who is this guy, Darwin, uh, one thing you can see just from the title page is that, that, is that he comes certified by serious people interested in serious things. Now, not all societies are the same. So uh, back to the Darwin quiz now. So uh, this place, a bit of a giveaway. <laughs> London Zoo, but what's the connection to Darwin? I'm sorry, say that again? He went to look at the gorillas. Not the gorillas, but the orangutans. He's certainly the great apes. Yeah, certainly the great apes. Yeah, he sure did. The London Zoo, Darwin loved to go to the zoo. Uh, uh, certainly while he was in London, uh, went to the zoo to see the apes and observe them. And there's comments about them in the notebooks. Uh, that's certainly the case. Uh, uh, Darwin is elected, again, early on in that, in that period, just back from... The, just back from the Voyage of the Beagle and just back from uh, Cambridge, he is uh, elected a fellow of the uh, Zoological Society, and he's, he's a fellow of that group, using the library and the resources. Now, on your map, this is number seven. The, there's the Regent's Park Zoo up in the upper left-hand corner, but you also find that I put another number seven on, on the page. Now, the London's, the Zoological Society operated a couple of different locations in London uh, in the 1830s, uh, into the 1840s and into the 1850s. The second location moved around a couple of places, and, and for some part of Darwin's time, it was in Leicester Square. They operated a museum. The Zoological Society operated a museum uh, in Leicester Square, and that's why that other number seven is there. But I also want to tell you about the Zoological Society because... Not all societies are the same in Darwin's life, and, and as he's socializing and as he's looking for, uh, for credentialing and, and for colleagues and for interaction, um, he doesn't like some of the things that he interacts with. And now, before, is anybody here part of the zoo? Well, I'm a fellow of the zoo, and I can tell you quite honestly that Darwin didn't quite like the Zoological Society. Uh, in fact, he writes in, in one of his letters uh, to Henslow, uh, one of his, his uh, mentors in Cambridge, uh, in 1836, just back from the, from the Beagle, he attends a meeting of the Zoological Society, and he, sa he writes this. He says, I'm out of patience with the zoologists, not because they're overworked, but for their mean, quarrelsome spirit. I went to, the other evening to the Zoological Society, where the speakers were snarling at each other in a, in a manner anything but like that of gentlemen. So not all societies are the same. Darwin is, is picking and choosing uh, in particular ways. He joins some uh, and, and really gets involved in others. Now back to that Darwin quiz. What's the connection to Darwin? Oops, no, no, no. What's the connection? What's the connection to Darwin? Where is this now? At the, at the, so you guys are fading, you see, after that stretch, and you're thinking about those sandwiches again. So where, where is this? It's the Athenaeum. Very, very good. At the Athenaeum. Yes. Uh, uh, Darwin is, a, is elected to the Athenaeum again in this period while he's living in London. Um, he sees that as, as an important step forward. Now, the, the Athenaeum was, was founded about a, a, a decade before in the, uh, in the 1820s, and that's when this beautiful Decimus Burton building is, is built, only painted, the blue Wedgwood bits are painted later, but it's such a beautiful building you can walk past today. Um, uh, it, it was seen as the haunt of, of men of inherited wealth and not much talent, and in the 1830s, the transition was underway in, uh, towards something like um, 
uh, a club for the intellectual elite. Um, and certainly Darwin's election, he certainly saw it as a pinnacle of that affirmation uh, as being part of the intellectual elite. Uh, my sense is Darwin used the library the most. This kind of building would have housed a, a library, a dining hall, or dining room, dining hall, a dining room, and uh, some uh, rooms for gentlemen to stay uh, w whilst visiting London, and it's certainly the case. This is number eight on your map at the very bottom of Regent Street, number eight on your map. Uh, the, the Athenaeum certainly has important things to say. I, also, if you ever walk to the Athenaeum, if you're ever walking around the Athenaeum, you'll notice right next door is the Travelers Club, open to anyone who had been uh, farther than 500 miles from London just basically past Paris, and Darwin certainly would have qualified there, a place for men to talk about their tales of travel and, and exploration. And then right next to that was the politically-based reform club uh, for, for men supporting the reform bills uh, in, the, in the period. So Paul Mal is, is quite the place, uh, clubland as they certainly call it. Uh, back to the Darwin quiz. What's this place? Yeah, it's upstairs. See, I'm just, just trying to suck up to Simon because he's holding the timer on the talks, you see. Yeah, it's just upstairs. The beautiful now uh, revision seat. Yeah, the beautiful new uh, uh, galleries, of course. And But what's the connection? Uh, here, here, of course, is the, is the uh, 1843 print from London Interiors. Uh, uh, more to Darwin's day. You notice the glyptodon here and, and the megatherium here. And people always tell me that this is Richard Owen, but I'm not so sure. I don't know. I don't know that uh, particular thing. But this is the interior uh, version that Darwin sort of certainly would have known. But what's the connection to Darwin then? Richard Owen. Yes, Richard Owen, of course. Richard Owen was no fool. He uh, schmoozed Darwin to get his collections, if nothing else. And uh, it's certainly the case after some very hard work by Owen that, that um, Darwin's uh, paleontological material, some of it, most of it at least, comes here. Um, Darwin first, though, considered not really the British Museum, but the Paris Museum, sending material to the Paris Museum before here. Mm, yes, indeed. Right, so back to the Darwin quiz. Back to the Darwin quiz. Now, here's a tougher one. First, what's this place? <laughs> Liberties, how? Of course, of course, Liberties. Yes, the, the mock Tudor 1920s uh, exterior there, built during a, a post-Great War revival of tradition, certainly. But what's the connection to Darwin? His house is on the site and Great Marlborough Street. That's certainly the, that's as close as we're going to get, I think. Uh, uh, the, uh, Darwin's house is not on, on this particular site, but it's very nearby. It's Great Marlborough Street. On your map there, if you see GTMST, Great Marlborough Street. Uh, so if you basically go from the Athenaeum up the hill, up Regent Street, uh, up the absolutely beautiful Nash uh, uh, urban planning, and you, you get to Great Marlborough Street. If you turn right, you walk past Liberty, and half a block later, you get to this building, uh, number 43 here, number 43 is his brother's Erasmus's house. Erasmus bought this house in, or he didn't bought it, I'm sorry, he rented it in, uh, in 1836 in January, and it was huge, so huge that everybody in the family, as families do, 
come to London and stay, uh, come to London and visit. Char uh, Charles certainly was one, uh, but uh, at some point the family joked about Erasmus running the Darwin Wedgwood Arms uh, as the kind of tavern for people to stay. Now, if you, you certainly can go to Great Marlborough Street, the GTMST on your map, and you can walk to number 43, which I did just yesterday, and take this photograph of this building. But again, you'll be deceived because, as we heard earlier, from the 1850s onwards, massive rebuilding, refurbishing, changing of the buildings around London. This building is an 1870s facade, this uh, Franco-Italianate uh, style, uh, a bit gaudy for my own taste. But if you're standing at number 43 trying to take this photograph, let me ask you just to move to the left a little bit to number 47 or to number 49 here because those are two buildings that would have been familiar to Erasmus and Charles uh, in 1836. This is, uh, this is a uh, 18th century building, uh, very little modified since, and this is an, a, um, an 18th century building with a stucco facade added about 1830. So that the paint would have been drying whilst Erasmus was unpacking basically here, and uh, it's only slightly, slightly about here where number 43 is. So if you go over there to take a snap, uh, do keep an eye on number 47. That's a much closer representation of a house. In fact, this is two houses uh, uh, merged together uh, at the time. Okay, so number 43, Great Marlborough Street, is where Erasmus lived and where Charles stayed. Now, just again to remind you of the, the timeline, Darwin's back from the Beagle in October 1836. He spends a, a couple of months wasting his time in Cambridge just for John's sake, uh, wasting his time in Cambridge before he comes to the big smoke. And when he does come down after a few months, he stays with his brother for a bit, and he looks for, uh, he looks for uh, a, a house of his, ho his own to let. Now I'm going to walk down Great Marlborough Street back towards Liberty, uh, so standing basically across from Liberty. Now looking back down that street, and you can see here is uh, 43 Great Marlborough Street where Erasmus was. And if you just come down the street and around this corner, get yourself a nice cup of tea in Leon's. And if you did that, you'd be sitting in the ground floor of Darwin's, uh, the house that Darwin rented um, uh, in March 1837 to stay for a few years. And that's 36 Great Marlborough Street. Um, most people put it in this building, which is wrong. Uh, this, this building here is 35 and 36. And this is the 36th side. So do get yourself a cup of tea. They actually make very good coffee in Leon's. So have a, have a, have a sit there. You'd be sitting in, in uh, probably the dining room of someone letting that house there. So this is 36 Great Marlborough Street, as I said. And if you don't believe me, look at the address that's right there in the, in the stairwell. Um, this is exactly where Darwin uh, spent a few of his, his years before his marriage and before moving to moving uh, on. One little bit of trivia here is uh, if you're standing here taking a photograph like this uh, in, in uh, Great Marble Street, you notice this mock Tudor little bit. Now I'm just going to move the camera over to the right a bit to get a nice picture of that building here. But you'll notice that it's right along Carnaby Street. Uh, and I absolutely love this from a I don't know, a social historian's point of view, how the social revolutions of the 1960s took place, no, not knowing at all that they're standing next to a place where the intellectual revolutions of the, 19, uh, the 1830s were taking place. Ah, so you, you guys like that. Very good. Very good. And then get yourself something nice and liberty. Excellent chocolate right inside that spot. Right. Okay. Back to the Darwin, back to the Darwin quiz. 
And uh, just a couple more, and then we'll be uh, on the way to sandwiches. Uh, here's another one, and I know you know the answer to this. So what's the connection uh, to Darwin? From the back, what's the connection to Darwin? So he certainly lived there, yes, uh, Gower Street. That's certainly the case. And, and if you don't walk up there to the reception tonight, you can certainly uh, walk up there any other time. Uh, I want to uh, talk about what was called at the time McCall Cottage. It's on your map as McCall, just to remind you. At the uh, Torrington Place and Gower Street intersection, right across from the what now is the Waterstones, the old, the old Dillons. Um, if you walk up the street a bit, of course, you're on our home turf, uh, UCL. The great Wilkins building built in the 1820s when the university was founded, that neoclassical uh, uh, revival story. Some of you may have seen this image, which is George Shepard's 1835 printing. So about, about eight years after the college is founded, if you go to the reception, you'll be walking down this way. And if you have too much to drink, you'll probably look like this background here somewhere. Um, of course, all this has been torn away, but the Gower Muse is what the painting is called. The Gower Muse uh, remains now um, on the way. This is the earliest photograph of the University College. I date this to the 1860s. Nobody quite knows exactly when it was taken, but it shows the, the idea was build that great quadrangle that exists today, but it took quite a bit of time to get the capital together to do that. And so for a long time, this is University College London. And the, the collections that Grant had certainly are in, are in this building. This is one of the students skiving off lectures, as you might have noticed. Right Now, I want to talk a little bit about McCaw Cottage and the time there. Um, so, so hang on, a bit of a big picture first. Now, we're talking about 1838 to 1842, those years. And um, Darwin uh, proposes to Emma in November 1838, in November. In December, Emma comes to London so that they can look for places to live. Um, by the end of the month, they... Um, she had, by the end of the month, she had returned home, but Darwin had selected something, and without her direct permission, I like that idea, uh, without her direct permission, Darwin goes ahead and lets a house, uh, that's on Upper Gower Street, and I'll show you that in, in a minute, um, by the end of December, so I think he, he gets the keys on the 29th of December. An anxious young man that he is, he wants to move in that day, and it's not until the 1st of January, which is New Year's Day, that he, that he enlists Covington, his, his uh, assistant, and various movers, and he moves his stuff from Marlborough Street up to Gower Street. And that night, the 1st of January, 1839, is the first night he's in the house. Now, this plaque, <laughs> if you count the day he signs the lease and gets the keys, fine. But if you, the first night he's there, which is my wife's rule, the first night that you're there, that's the first night you're, you're there, that's wrong. There you go. Right. So that's the broad scope. The house, of course, is not there anymore. This is the closest, which is if you stand at the corner of Gower Street and, and um, Torrington Place, look across the street to this house here, and, and you'll see what basically the house looked like to give you a sense of the floor plan of a lived building uh the kitchen is in the basement if you can see that the kitchen is in the basement uh the dining room is on the 
ground floor, uh, the drawing room where Emma's piano would have been as a, as a wedding gift would have been there, and then bedrooms, nurseries, and then the servants would have slept, slept on the top floor. Uh, Darwin had a study on the ground floor in the back. Uh, the back uh, overlooked a garden. Again, this is exactly the same building. You see the Darwin building uh, now here, so this is literally the one on the corner. This range is as close to the range that was there in Darwin's time as, as you can get uh, right across the street. And the garden here, 90 foot long, lovely 90 foot long garden, where Darwin would often be seen jogging, uh, trying to keep his his frame uh, an active man, no longer active in the big smoke. So so that's that's the, the garden. Um, let me give you a couple of basic stories about this time in, in Darwin's life. I, what I really get out of the first couple of months of Darwin living in, in, in this place, 12 Upper Gower Street, is just giddiness. He's a young man who's, who's proposed, who, who, uh, uh, who, who's looking for his, forward to his, to his wedding in, in a month's time. He's trying to unpack. He's trying to sort things out. He's uh, doing things that excited young men do, like buying terrible furniture. Uh, when, when he rents the build, when, when he decides to sign the lease, he also agrees to buy the furniture that's in the house, which is like a lot of rented accommodations, uh, a bit crap. And uh, the house is called Macaw Cottage because amongst the things that he purchased were the curtains, which were bright yellow, and a sofa, which was bright red. And poor Emma, could you imagine having to keep that house uh, with the junk that your new husband just bought. So Macaw Cottage comes furnished only because the giddy Charles uh, uh, did it. You can see in the very first, on the very first day that they moved in, on the 1st of January, uh, that Charles moved in, uh, 1st of January, 1839, he writes a letter to Emma, and he writes it, he addresses it, 12 uh, Upper Gower Street, and he puts those exclamation par- points on both sides of the address. You can just see the excitement that this is the new the new life uh, for him. The house uh, was a rented house, and there were previous occupants, and one of which is a fellow named Leonard Horner, who was a warden at UCL at, at the college, uh, and also comes into Darwin's life uh, in a very interesting way, in, in a, and I'll tell you about that in just a minute. Now, Gower, Upper Gower Street at the time was considerably less busy than it is today. Uh, it was, in fact, a cul-de-sac. There was a there was a, a um, the street was closed about the place where University Street is, or roughly where the gates to the university to UCL are now. Uh, that was uh, this was definitely a cul-de-sac, so it was a quiet street uh, when they when they moved in. About 50 houses, 25 on each side. Um, the gate at the University Street certainly would have stopped things. Um, this part of London, uh, the upper at Gower Street. Uh, was was built around 1780, 1790, and it's part of an expansion out from Bedford Square. So on your map, if you look where the Macaw Cottage is and you just follow Gower Street down to Bedford Square, uh, Bedford Square was built up from about 1775, and then as the Duke of Bedford was, was growing his real estate uh, in this part of town, uh, Gower Street was being built out, out towards what was the... Paddington to Islington Road, which is now called Euston Road. So in, in increments, this is being built out. And the house that, that is 12 Upper Gower Street, where, where uh, the Darwins lived, that, that certainly was there about 1780, 1790-ish, and certainly was seen as a bit of a, a, bit of a 
plain house, I think is the best way to say. And again, the best way to get a feel for that is if you walk along the east side of Gower Street up from Bedford Square and just look west, you see these rows upon rows of these plain brick houses, now mostly hotels, uh, on the way up towards UCL and your drink tonight. Um, uh, Now, as a lived space, 12 Upper Gower Street, the... uh, the, the great Darwin bibliographer in the 1980s, Freeman, uh, presented this image of Charles and Emma and their son coming out of 12 Upper Gower Street. It's a bit romanticized, but there you go. Uh, these images, which you've already seen today, uh, the wedding portraits, of course, of Charles and Emma, uh, two copies distributed uh, in various places. Now, as a lived building, 12 Upper Gower Street, Emma gave birth to their first two children. The Darwins uh, had 12, uh, I'm sorry, they had 10 children through their life. Seven survived um, uh, into adulthood. Two, the first two were born in McCall Cottage. Uh, William here was, uh, was born, I, I haven't done the math recently, I think 11 months after the marriage, uh, so that's good. Uh, William was born 11 months after the marriage, and Annie, of course, um, a few years later. They both were born in Upper Gower Street. Uh, William, in fact, it seems, was baptized in this place, which is the new church, the St. Pancras New Church, which opened uh, again in 1822, uh, consecrated in 1822. Uh, what a beautiful building, and it's quite clear now that, that uh, William was baptized uh, there. Annie was uh, although born in London, was quickly taken uh, home to Emma's family home uh, up north and uh, was baptized uh, there. Now, a couple of other, uh, one other thing I want to say about, about this time in Darwin's life, or Darwin and Emma's, Charles and Emma's life, is just to remind you of the great anomaly, at least we at UCL like to think of this, as the great anomaly, which is this guy. Uh, Darwin lives in number 12 of Bergauer Street. You could pretty much pick up a stick and throw, which I don't recommend, pick up a stick and throw it towards the Wilkins building and, and hit somebody walking around from the college. And uh, uh, Robert Grant certainly spent a great deal of time teaching and working at, at University College. Uh, Grant was one of Darwin's mentors in Edinburgh, uh, seemingly like-minded intellectually, uh, but it's quite clear that their relationship had grown cold by the time Darwin had returned, uh, uh, had come to London after the Beagle voyage and after a short stay in that dull place, Cambridge. He, um, uh, it's certainly the case that, that their relationship was quite cold. They, they interacted a bit, but I, the records are spare about that kind of interaction. It simply was just cold, I think. A couple of other things about that, about 12 Upper Gower Street. Hang on, we'll get to lunch, don't worry. Uh, moving out to Down, uh, of course, they move out to Down in uh, 18, uh, 1842. And in, you know, imagine, you remember how long it took to buy your house uh, and move. Uh, in the Darwins, with, when Emma was pregnant with their third child, the Darwins had outgrown both 12 Upper Gower Street, and I think they had grown, uh, outgrown London. Darwin had made the intellectual connections and established his re- reputation. And if, if any time was, was fine to lead the crowded, crowding city, it would be now to get to uh, somewhere else. And so, of course, Down was eventually chosen. They, went, they first saw Down in July 1842. They decided to buy it at the end of August. Two weeks later, Emma moved in, which is fantastic. Uh, and then uh, Charles followed shortly thereafter. But as most of you know, the third 
child in the Darwin family was lost, uh, born uh, uh, just after their arrival in Down, and uh, died uh, 24 days later. Uh, so the move to Down uh, is filled with both joy and, and sadness for the Darwin family. What happens to 12 Upper Gower Street? Well, three things uh, happen to it. Um, one is it's refurbished. It becomes an office and, a, um, and part of a warehouse. This is after 1904 when the, there's already a blue plaque to Darwin there, but this building looked completely different to what it would have been it, as a lived house. Um, it was converted, then it was converted again, this time by the Germans, and uh, in 1941 it was an uh, uh, open plan uh, building and uh, sadly, of course, bombed as part of the Blitz in, 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 in a terrible evening when things were happening. And, and thanks to John for pointing this out to me. Of course, you can see the blue plaque, or the plaque there uh, to the Darwin family. And uh, 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 it was ultimately torn down, and then this building was, was, uh, was put up after it. The Biological Sciences Building, built between 1959 and 1962, opened up as the Biological Sciences Building at University College London. And in 1982, it was rechristened the Darwin Building uh, when a new plaque went up with the same kind of error. Now, a couple of uh, things. I've got the five-minute warning, so let me, let me head towards a, a conclusion and remind you about the sandwiches. Now, see, my, my wife reminded me that sandwiches are good if they sit a couple of extra minutes. It lets the pickle marinate a bit, and, you know, so it's, this is actually doing good for your lunch. So hang on just a bit, just a little bit, a couple more minutes. Um, uh, to remind you of a couple of things. Now, I, I don't believe in telling alternative histories, but... Uh, now, just to remind you, when Darwin returned from the Beagle and spent those few months uh, wasting time in Cambridge and then come to London, uh, he was quite the eligible bachelor. He was quite a man uh, 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 noted and seen. Not only did he have money and talent, but he had initiative drive. He was clearly going to make something of himself. And quite a number of, of people tried to push daughters in front of him uh, uh, as marriage prospects, particularly daughters who were finished, and finished in that very particular sense of well-trained, perhaps as artists or translators or uh, in cultured in other ways. And one uh, one person who did this was that fellow that I mentioned before, Leonard Horner. Leonard Horner here, former warden at UCL, he had known Darwin in Edinburgh when, during those days, just only briefly, and they rekindled their friendship with a mutual interest in geology. Leonard Horner had uh, five daughters, all of which were superbly finished, and uh, one was married to Charles Lyell, so there's a nice connection, their family interest in geology and, and similar natural history things. Uh, this this uh, uh, row of buildings is uh, Bedford Place, which is near the British Museum, and it is number 10 on your on your map. Number two, Bedford Place was the home of the Horner family uh, while, while Darwin lived in, in, uh, in, in Great Marlborough Street. And Darwin very clearly from very early in his time in London uh, was flirting madly with the daughters and the daughters were flirting madly with him and, and the correspondents were going back and forth and I suspect as others do too that uh, everyone expected one of those children to be the focus of, of a proposal from young Charles um, and it was so expected that when Darwin finally proposed to Emma, he hid from uh, Mrs. Horner, as <laughs> you might too. And uh, Darwin, hears, um, Darwin hears several stories from the Horner family about the proposal uh, when news comes that he has proposed to Emma and not to the Horners. And uh, uh, 
uh, Lyle's wife, one of the sisters, uh, writes to Darwin and says, uh, your letters caused us some surprise, Charles, which is certainly true. And, of course, Erasmus came across the mother, uh, Mrs. Horner, at, at some point shortly thereafter, and she made it quite clear to Erasmus that uh, Darwin was ducking out on something that was fully expected of him. Uh, oh, she said, uh, that's the reason he would not come by us. Uh, very often. So Darwin frequented this this house, number two, Bedford Place, for an, for what might have been a different history uh, as part of the Horner family. What's worse is that when Darwin and uh, when Charles and Emma were looking for houses um, in December, just before the wedding, Darwin spotted a lovely property just across the street from two Bedford Place, and very nearly uh, led it until uh, Emma said. Uh, no, I don't really think so. Uh, and they described the Horneritas, the, the other sisters there. Uh, Emma decided that it would be quite insulting for her to live across the street from uh, Charles's ex-girlfriend, I suppose, which you might say. Right, very nearly done. Uh, lots of things in London uh, relate to Darwin quite specifically. And, and uh, again, that's been kind of the point of my talk, is that, uh, that Darwin is really everywhere here in London, even though he, he spent a relatively small amount of time in the center of the city. And, and what I was hoping to do is just point out some of the very specific places where you can go today to sort of relive the moment, I guess, if you wanted to. Uh, I, I can't get out of a talk without pointing to this building, Crystal Palace, and the connection to Darwin begins with simply saying everybody thinks Darwin was a recluse. I mean, there's that myth floating around that Darwin kept out of, intentionally kept out of touch, and that's just a myth, really, and in the last 10, 20 years, that myth has been really fully exploded, and the Crystal Palace is a great example of that because Darwin loved going to the Crystal Palace. He bought a ticket, a subscri annual subscription for the first year so that he could attend, he and his wife could attend the opening day when Queen Victoria was there to open the palace in 1854. And the story goes that, that Emma broke down in tears when God Save the Queen was sung out there. Uh, Darwin wrote to his son, who was in, in uh, William, who was in Cambridge at the time, uh, uh, reminding him with various triangulations about how to get there by by rail. Now, one thing I don't know is if Darwin ever walked around this place, but he certainly walked around Crystal Palace Park with Richard Owen, and it's hard to believe that those fellas didn't walk past there. Right. Very nearly done, truly very nearly done, and your sandwiches are well marinated at this point. Now, that map of yours that you've got, I just, again, I just put all over some of the places. There are many others that connect to Darwin. You may notice this crookedy little line here between Nine and, and roughly, roughly uh, Macaw Cottage. If you wanted to, if you wanted, uh, on your way up to the reception tonight, if you wanted to walk in a way that kept you close to the 1820s and 30s, I've mapped out some kind of path that at least once you get to Holborn and, and north, you can walk by Bedford Place, Russell Square, which, is, which uh, was opened up in, in 1800, and so on in various places. It gets you, keep you as close to the 1820s uh, and 30s as it's pretty much possible to be on your way off to a reception. Finally, let me remind you the, a couple of things that I wanted you to walk away and remember whilst you're chewing on your sandwiches and looking for those biscuits that are rightfully mine. Uh, it is, uh, uh, the traces of Darwin are everywhere, and uh, if this talk has done anything, it's just reminded you of some of that, particularly through some of the scientific societies and the social connections that Darwin got himself up to. Anyway, you guys have been a great audience. Thank you very much. Enjoy your lunch.
Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Natasha McEnroe, the manager of the Grant Museum of Zoology at UCL, and it's a pleasure to be here this afternoon. The, um, the only housekeeping that I have to do is to remind everyone to switch their mobile phones off in case you switch them on again during the lunch break. I'm sure that you, you all enjoyed the morning as much as, as much as I did. I was just saying to Jim that the nice thing about, uh, about organising an event yourself is that you actually get to choose all the speakers, so they're all people who I really wanted to hear. Um, also, if anybody is thinking about um, co being a co-host of an event, I thoroughly recommend being the half that doesn't actually do the hosting. I have to say, I'm having, I'm having a really, really enjoyable day. Um, the morning session was um, looking at Darwin's London and specifically about the places. And for the afternoon, we're broadening it out and looking about people, both specifically and more generally. Our next speaker is Jim Endersby, um, who is probably best known to many of us as author of the acclaimed A Guinea Pig's History of Biology. Jim lectures at the University of Sussex, and he's an acknowledged expert in the history of natural history and biology. Um, he's editor of the, um, or my notes say, of the forthcoming new edition um, of On the Origin of Species, but um, in fact it is now out, recently out, so do dash the shops and get that. Um, Jim's going to be talking today on Darwin's friends and foes. Thank you very much. Thank you all for coming. Uh, I should warn you, though, before you dash to the shops, that um, unless you're an MP whose party leader hasn't caught up with them yet, you won't be able to afford it because it's Cambridge University Press. <laughs> but if you know a rich institution, uh, do get them to buy it, and it may eventually appear in paperback. So I was asked to speak on this topic, and my first thought was um, to try and give you an overview of the scientific communities within which Darwin moved, the, the range of people he knew and the people that, that he worked with uh, and the ways that he reacted to them and, and interacted with them. And I realized that in the time available, that would very rapidly degenerate into a catalog of fairly unfamiliar names, most of whom I wouldn't have time to say anything about. So I want to narrow and shift the focus a little bit in two ways. First of all, I'm actually going to talk about a slightly later period of London scientific society. I'm going to talk about the period after The Origin is published and look a little bit at reactions to it. And part of the reason I want to do that is also to shift the emphasis away from the private Darwin, the Darwin we've been hearing about, the notebooks, the letters, the diaries, his marriage, his private life, these things, and think about his readership and his audiences, the people who bought and read and responded to his books. So with that in mind, I'm going to take three people in particular. This is Richard Owen, of course, who we've met briefly already. Um, Darwin's friend in the early days, Darwin's enemy in later ones, and that's one of the things that I want to talk about. Thomas Henry Huxley, well-known uh, and very rather aggressive friend of Darwin's, um, and Joseph Dalton Hooker. And by looking at these three and about how they reacted to Darwin, I think we can understand something very interesting about London Scientific Society and perhaps understand something about Darwin and about the impact Darwin had. So I want to, like several of the other speakers, perhaps take on some slight myths that surround Darwin. 
and perhaps the most important one that it comes up again and again this year is the idea that The Origin of Species is a deeply divisive book. Uh, Steve Jones alluded this morning to the fact that the standard science versus religion story is largely myth. I would entirely agree. Time prohibits me going into that in detail. But this notion that men of science and men of religion are at each other's throats as soon as Darwin publishes is just nonsense. But it looks more plausible to say that it, the theory divides the scientific community into pro- and anti-Darwinian camps. But that's the, that's the topic I want to try and, and question today. Is that really true, or is that a good historical explanation of some of the divisions that clearly result? And I want to argue that there may be other ways of looking at this. So let me start with Owen and Huxley. These two clash very famously on a number of occasions, but in particular, they clash over the differences between humans and apes and over the brains of humans and apes. And they have a ferocious debate about the anatomy of the brain, whether, as Owen claims, it contains, the human brain contains a unique organ, the hippocampus minor, which is not found in any of the great apes. And this becomes so well known that it's actually satirized by Charles Kingsley, famously in The Water Babies, where it becomes the hippopotamus debate. And this is the end piece to the Kingsley's edition, a rather lovely image of very recognizably Owen and Huxley examining a water baby in spirits, preserved in a bottle, about to dissect it and settle this argument. Um, this picture is so well known that Julian Huxley, Thomas Henry's grandson, brother of Aldous the novelist, who was a distinguished biologist himself, recounts that when he was growing up, he knew this picture and was convinced that this water baby must be in the house somewhere, that his grandfather, and he searched for it diligently for days without finding it. So this is a well-known a well debate. To try and understand how and why these men clashed, we would traditionally look at is issues like this. This is Owen. He's an anti-Darwinian. Why is he an anti-Darwinian? What kinds of things would we, would we point to? First of all, he's from a slightly older generation. He's a little older than Darwin, quite a bit older than Huxley and Hooker. So he comes out of a slightly different scientific world, a world in particular in which patronage rules. It's who you know as much as what you know that gets you uh, places in this world. He's a staunch Anglican, and he's particularly reliant on Anglican uh, circles for patronage, the Oxford, Cambridge, London, uh, Anglican gentry, the people with power and influence. They help him to get ahead. And he's politically conservative, and this is kind of predictable. It goes with the Anglicanism. It goes with him being an old fart. All of this is of a piece. So we have this kind of picture. This is Owen and where he's coming from. And we contrast him with Huxley. And again, the explanatory framework looks pretty straightforward. He's pro-Darwinian. Why? He's young. He's aggressive. He's a young man in a hurry. He comes from a very humble background. Actually, not that unlike Owen's, but even more humble. Um, and he's impatient. And he sees the... Uh, the Anglican gentry is the kind of people who are in his way. He's, he's aggressively agnostic. In fact, he's the man who coins the word agnostic to describe his position. And he was, as I'm sure you all know, the kind of man who couldn't see a bishop without picking a fight. So the kind of people who got Owen his job and so on were the kind of people he distinctly resented, people who were blocking careers based on merit, careers like his. And, of course, he's a political progressive, relatively speaking, certainly when he's younger. So we get a kind of contrast, these two different men coming from two different backgrounds, having two different sets of values. This explains why they take opposite views in the Darwin argument and why they clash in the way that they do. Well, does it? This is the kind of way that this debate becomes public 
Owen and Huxley are famously satirized. Um, and this image, of course, refers to the famous anti-slavery image, which Darwin and Emma's families, the Wedgwood Darwin families, are very involved in the anti-slavery cause. And the question of, am I not a man and a brother, um, has a very powerful set of resonances. Am I satyr a man? Pray tell me who can and settle my place in the scale. A man in ape shape, an anthropoid ape, or a monkey deprived of his tail? And this very public battle about where we stand in nature and how, if at all, we are related to other animals is part of the whole kind of Darwinian furore. But I want to look at these two guys in a rather different context. And very simply, I want to put them in the context of the institutions within which they shape their careers. Now, Owen, of course is director of the Hunterian Museum. His collection actually stood more or less where we are now uh, when he was in charge of it. This is where the museum was, Simon tells me. And uh, he relies on those patronage networks, the patronage of the College of Surgeons and so on, to get him this job. And then he shapes a very important career. And Darwin is very useful to him in that career, as he is to Darwin, in describing the beagle fossils and so on. He then becomes superintendent of the Natural History Department of the British Museum just down the road. And in those days, of course, the British Museum contains all Hans Sloan's former collections and the many things that have been added to them over the uh, decades since. And it's bursting at the seams. So Owen is given superintendent of the Natural History Collections, but he's convinced from the day he gets the job that they need more space. They just cannot manage. So he campaigns long and hard over many, many years to get Parliament to fund a purpose-built natural history museum and he is eventually successful. In 1870, Parliament approves the idea, but as you can see, it takes more than a decade to actually build it. And as I'm sure you're all very familiar, Waterhouse Hawkins' brilliant monument to the kind of natural history science, this Cathedral of Science, where I'll be taking my six-year-old next Saturday. This is the kind of pinnacle of Owen's career, the battle to get this museum and then to run it and to keep it and to keep its collections intact and to ensure that it is the foremost natural history collection in the country, and one of the most important in the world. And I think the drive to build and maintain this institution, to prevent it being threatened by any other institution, is very important to Owen's sense of who he is and where he's going. And what he does in his later years and his reaction to Darwinism is to some extent shaped by these career concerns about where he's going. And I'll come back to that and explain why I think that is. Now, if we look at Huxley, by contrast... Huxley, uh, as I say, comes from a very humble background. He qualifies as a doctor, becomes a naval surgeon, an assistant surgeon on the Rattlesnake Voyage, standard way to make a name for yourself. He's very unlike Darwin. He's not a self-funded gentlemanly companion to the captain. He's a hard-working naval officer, subject to naval discipline. When he gets back, he manages to get half pay from the Admiralty to write up his results, to publish the collections. How does he get that? Owen gets him that. Owen is his patron in these early years. And Owen had, from Huxley's account, a distinctly haughty manner and expected you to be very grateful for the crumbs that he threw you. And this is, I think, one of the sources of the friction between him and Huxley. Huxley has a good deal of difficulty finding a steady position for himself. And what he does is build up a number of positions in different places. So he lectures at the School of Mines, He's the Falerian Professor of Physiology at the Royal Institution. He has to do several of these jobs, often simultaneously, as well as writing a lot for the press and so on, in order to make a living. He's in a position of having to wait a long time to get married. He meets 
Henrietta Heathhorn, his, the love of his life, while he's in Australia on the rattlesnake. And it's almost a decade before he can afford to bring her back to Britain and marry her. So he's got a personal resentment about the difficulty of getting ahead in science, the difficulty of earning a living from science. But what you'll see immediately is that he doesn't have an institutional home in the way that Owen has. He moves from place to place, and he has to put together a living from a number of different sources. So he has a different set of allegiances, one of which is to the public, to the idea of being a public entertainer, a lecturer, a writer, somebody who is a, a great show-off and a great uh, showman. And one of the things that draws him to Darwin is that it's lovely, juicy, controversial stuff. So he writes to Darwin. He gives these lectures to working men after the origin appears, and he writes to Darwin how, you know, my working men are all uh, right behind me. I'll have them all believing they're monkeys by Monday, you know. So it's great stuff to get a popular audience going. Um, different set of concerns. Now, why might Owen's opposition to Darwinism be shaped by his institutional connections? I want to examine that by looking at a slightly less familiar story, and the Owen-Huxley clash, to look at the conflicts that he gets into with Hooker. Now, this is Joseph Hooker, one of the, I think, great beards of the Victorian scientific world. He gets more eccentric and ridiculous as he gets older. This is mid-period beard. He has a very strikingly similar career to Huxley's in some respects. He gets his start as a man of science aboard HMS Erebus, a naval surveying vessel, where he, like Huxley, is a junior surgeon. He's a naval officer. He's paid to go on there. He also gets half pay from the Admiralty for a couple of years afterwards to write up. And again, he's dependent on patronage, although in his case, it's his father who helps him uh, get the, the gig because William Hooker, his father, is a well-connected man of science. He's a Regis Professor of Botany at Glasgow University when Joseph sets sail on the Erebus. By the time Joseph gets back, his father is director of the Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew, which had just been taken over by the government out of the royal family's hands. William Hooker doesn't have a lot of money. This is actually not the reason he gets this job. Is actually he's willing to take a lower salary than his main rival. So he's not a rich man, but he knows a lot of people, and he pulls strings to get Joe onto this voyage and then to get him the Admiralty half pay when he gets back. And I think Hooker shares with Huxley some resentment about the patronage networks and the need to do all this kind of bowing and scraping and groveling to get where you want to go. He finds it very hard to get a paid position. So one of the first things he goes for is the lectureship in botany at Edinburgh University, which he fails to get despite having a great thick wad of testimonials from everybody from the, the Prime Minister down. This doesn't cut enough ice with the Edinburgh City Council who want an experienced lecturer who's going to teach medical men to recognize plants from which to make medicines. He doesn't get that job. He has to go off traveling again. And like Huxley, he has to delay marriage for several years while he goes to the Himalayas to do more collecting, publish more books, build up his reputation. And it's only finally in 1855 that he manages to get the job. A job is created for him at Kew as deputy director to his father, who is now 70 years old, and the government realizes that Kew is now so big he can't manage on his own. So the institution of Kew is very important to Hooker's career. Um, it's very important to his father's work, and he uses the collections, his father's collections initially, in writing his books and making a name for himself, he adds greatly to those collections through his own travels and so on. And then once, from 1855, he gets this job. And then in 1865, his father dies, and he inherits Q from his father. This is a public service position, but he does literally inherit it because his father leaves his herbarium collection, that's all the plants, the dried plants, and the library, 
which he has built up out of his own pocket over many years to the nation on condition that Joe gets the job. So this may look like a career based on merit to Joseph Hooker, but I'm not sure that other people would have seen it in quite that way. So this is the institution the Hookers build up, and it's an interesting contrast to, Q, to the British Museum in a number of ways, not the least of which is that respectable middle-class ladies and gentlemen, gardening enthusiasts and people like that, are very important to the survival and existence of Kew. And there are tensions over the degree to which this is intended to be a public park and the degree to which it's supposed to be doing serious scientific research. And there is a debate that goes on about what kind of institution Kew should be, whether the hooker's vision of it as a great scientific research institution is really the appropriate one for what becomes an increasingly popular day out for Londoners, especially once the railway reaches Kew. So this clash, what I want to say about this clash between Owen and Hooker, which I'm about to describe, is that in some ways it's better understood as a clash between two institutions. And they're competing in several senses, but they're particularly what's being debated is what kind of institutions are they supposed to be, who is their audience, why should the nation be funding them, and what is their future going to be. So here's a rather less familiar caricature than the monkey I showed you earlier. This is Joseph Hooker having his ear tweaked by John Ball in the guise of a headmaster who is telling him, you're more trouble than all the rest of the boys put together with your bullying and stupidity, and I have a great mind to expel you. Mind you behave better after the holidays, or I will. And you may just about be able to read the name on the slate, which is on the desk next to him. It says Ayrton. Now, this is a controversy which is really unfamiliar even to people like me who are serious history of botany nerds. Uh, it's not well known to the public, so I'll give you a brief overview of what was involved. This is a punch caricature of uh, the cabinet uh, in the early 1870s, and the man I want to talk about is this prepossessing character over here, Acton Smee Ayrton. Um, in this cartoon, uh, which is about the, the odd collection of personalities in the cabinet, Ayrton is saying, and mind you're all polite and gentlemanly, do you hear? And as you can see, the caricaturist has clearly picked him out as someone who is not, by nature, polite and gentlemanly. He was notoriously boorish and aggressive. He was the Liberal MP for Tower Hamlets, very much a believer in reform, very much an opponent of corruption, as he saw it. And thanks to his support um, for Gladstone over a number of years, he was rewarded when the ministry comes in uh, with the, being the first commissioner of works. That means he's responsible for both Kew and the British Museum. He is the ultimate political master of both these institutions. And he gets into this broil with Hooker in the early 70s. Almost the minute he takes over the job, he and Hooker start fighting with each other. I'm not, the details of this are really quite tedious, even if you're very interested in the topic, so I won't go into too many. What they really revolve around is uh, the limits of Hooker's authority at Kew. In his father's day, he and his father enjoyed a very informal, friendly relationship with Ayrton's predecessor, and they'd basically been left to run things as they saw fit. Their expertise and the degree to which they had personally put themselves, their money, and their collections at the service of the nation at Kew was recognized. Um, and the salaries they received were regarded as a kind of honorarium, as a sort of small token of appreciation from a grateful nation to what was basically disinterested service. Ayrton is not having any of this, and they clash, for example, over the commissioning of new boilers for the hothouses. Hooker takes the view, Joseph Hooker now, that uh, as he is the botanist and he knows about the plants, he is the only one qualified uh, to commission new boilers, and he will employ his favorite firm of builders to put them in place. 
Ayrton takes the, I think, not unreasonable view that public works paid for by the public purse should be put out to tender by the uh, clerk of works who he has just appointed. And uh, Hooker is offended by this and runs off to the Prime Minister complaining that he's being treated with disrespect by this boorish uh, gentleman. Um, and this runs over into the papers, and there is a considerable degree of interest in this over a couple of years, which actually ends with Hooker having to apologise for the fact that he's publicly called Ayrton a liar. Uh, so he actually shoots himself in the foot by being hot-tempered and impulsive. But the press all say, look, you know, the issue here is who is the gentleman, and it's clearly Hooker. Um, so the issues of class and manners and so on are actually much more important than issues of scientific expertise. But it's, as an aside, it's interesting that Hooker is always regarded as one of the kind of professionalizers of science. Um, it's clear in many ways he's the kind of last great gentlemanly naturalist. If there's a professionalizer here, it's actually Ayrton talking about competitive civil service exams and things being put out to tender. But in the wake of the, the, the royal, as it's, it's bubble, it's fading and uh, the apology's been accepted and it's all being forgotten, the Saturday Review, who've reported every stage of this, uh, they say the only useful thing that's come out of it is that it has brought to light the project which is hatching for the flinging of the South Kensington shoe over Kew Gardens and making the herbarium a washpot for coal. Now, this is, I'm sure you're all perfectly familiar, as a reference to the 60th Psalm, uh, Edom, uh, over Edom will I cast my shoe, Moab is my washpot. I don't know quite what that means, but there's a triumphal tone there that you can really not miss. Sir Henry Cole is the public servant responsible for the South Kensington site where the Natural History Museum and the other buildings are going to be built. So what is being hinted at here is that the herbarium, the, the heart of the scientific work at Kew, is going to be taken away and given to the British Museum. This is certainly Hooker's view of it. He writes to his friend James Hector in New Zealand, the brute Ayrton has set his heart on disestablishing Kew as a scientific institution. And his reasons for suspecting this are pretty obvious. Ayrton actually said to Parliament, asked whether it is desirable on the grounds of science, public utility, efficiency or economy that two museums, the rival herbaria at the British Museum in Kew, should be kept up with their libraries and staff of public servants to prosecute the science of botany. Why do we have two national botanical collections? Perhaps they should be merged. Perhaps they need a single director, particularly because the Kensington Museum will be close to one station and Kew Gardens close to another on a short line of railway with telegraphic communication between one, inst between one institution. And the sum now spent on the collections, library, and establishment for botany at Kew might be expended in completing and improving the establishment at Kensington or be saved. And I think it's, again, very interesting just to go back to the talks we had this morning, to think about the railway and the telegraph, the quintessential Victorian technologies, which, as the Victorians themselves say, obliterate time and space, are being brought to bear on this as a reason for merging these two museums. We'll have a kind of virtual museum over two sites with a single director in charge of both institutions, the te telegraph and the railway, which are transforming the lives of ordinary Londoners, uh, are going to make this scientific reform possible and will save money in the process. Now, because of the dispute with Ayrton, all the parliamentary papers and so on are published. And among them is an, uh, a piece written by Owen giving his view on what should be done with these collections, which is how Owen becomes part of this story. Ayrton had talked to him, and uh, uh, Owen had given him a written guidance as to what he should do, and the scheme for merging the museum herbaria is Owen's scheme. He actually compares Kew to the menagerie at Regent's Park, to the zoo, whose chief application is the instructive pleasure of the public. 
And he points out that they don't have a big zoological collection in glass jars. That's the British Museum's job. The duplicate herbaria, the two rival collections, are the result of the misapplication of opportunities and influence of the present director of the Royal Gardens of Kew. So Booker himself is personally responsible for this empire-building exercise that's resulted in this waste of money, this duplication of, ex of effort. And not content with having a go at Hooker's motives in this, Owen actually has a smack at botany itself. The scientific work of which a herbarium is the instrument has been defined by a great wit and original thinker as attaching barbarous binomials to dried foreign weeds. This roughly expresses the net result of the application of a museum of dried plants. <laughs> I've not actually been able to trace this quote. I suspect the great wit and original thinker was Richard Owen, but I'd be interested to hear otherwise. The paranoia underpinning all of this was mutual. And it's actually Hooker and Darwin and their allies who've set this hair running through the friends that they had at Nature, the newly founded scientific journal, Sir Norman Lockyer's Nature, which in 1870, just at the time that the Natural History Museum has been uh, the funding for it has been agreed, they mentioned that they had been favoured with a copy of a memorial drawn up as long ago as 1858. Interesting date. In 1858, when Owen is campaigning hard to get his new museum, the writers of this memorial proposed to the government precisely the opposite scheme to the one that Owen was putting forward in the 1870s, which is that it's the British Museum that should be stripped of its plant collections and they should all be given to queue, precisely on the same grounds of efficiency, cost, and time-saving. Why has this been resurrected in 1870? The editors say, well, you know, it's in the news, of course. The government's just approved this money. Now's the time to have a discussion about the rational, proper way to organise these collections. And if Owen might perhaps have felt that there was a conspiracy afoot to rob him of the jewel in his crown, the list of signatories to this original 1858 memorial would have been very interesting. Many of these names I'm sure familiar to, to you. But Bentham, Harvey, Henfrey, Henslow, Lindley, Busk, Carpenter are all very good friends of Hooker's. And the last two names are particularly good friends of Hooker's. Hooker himself is not on this list. Remember, in 1858, he's just deputy director of Kew. He's not that famous, that well-known, but I suspect politically it was better to keep his name off the list for that reason. So there is an alliance here at work favoring one institution over another. But this, of course, is pre-the origin. This is before we've divided over scientific issues to do with evolution. And I think the rival claims of these institutions and rival conceptions of what science should be, what its place in the nation should be, who should be in charge of it, and particularly this clash over different kinds of patronage, different kinds of support, and how that's going to work in practice, who is going to exercise patronage, these are the things that underlie this clash. And I think there's a very clear sense in which Darwinism becomes something which is taken up by various people to help them pursue particular kinds of... Uh, of scientific agendas that don't actually have anything to do with evolution. This is Kew's new herbarium wing, built in the 1870s. There is an empire being built here. This herbarium is getting bigger all the time. It's now the biggest in the world. It attained that status very early on in its life. Um, and this, as I say, is built just at the time that the Natural History Museum is on the drawing board. You want a herbarium, you've got to fill it. This is what they're actually fighting over. This is the core of the dispute this is what a herbarium actually looks like. These specimens were collected by Sir Joseph Banks on Captain Cook's voyage. This is actually the type of specimen of Banksia serrata, the genus named in Banks's honour. 
Where's that herbarium? At the British Museum, because Banks left all his collections and uh, his assistant, Robert Brown, got the job of looking after them, just as Joe got the job of looking after his dance collections, he left them to the nation in his will on the proviso that Brown got the job. And Brown guarded his territory at the British Museum very fiercely, to the extent, according to the hookers, of not sharing so much as a single leaf with anyone else. Um, but the, the ownership of this treasure, accumulated by private means, not through government money, is what's really at the heart of this. Who, the person with the biggest herbarium wins in disputes about classification and scientific expertise. But there's a real clash between the claims of these different institutions and about the kind of institution that Q is going to be. And I want to finish off by talking very quickly about this man, a much less familiar na name, John Edward Gray. Gray was one of Owen's underlings at the British Museum. He was keeper of the zoological department, as you can see, for very, very many years. And he's a, a name that is well known to Darwin scholars because he was a very important assistant to Darwin he lent the National Collection of Barnacles to Darwin. He put them in boxes and sent them down to Down House so that Darwin could write his barnacle books. Um, who you knew mattered more than what you knew uh, with a vengeance. And my friend Gordon McQuatt, who's worked a lot on Gray, has argued, and I find this very persuasive, that people like Gray are actually kind of much more typical of working Victorian naturalists than people like Darwin are. And one of the things that's interesting about Gray is that he doesn't have any big part in the standard histories of Darwinism and the impact of Darwin on the sciences because he never took a public stand on Darwinism. He kept quiet. And it's interesting that he owed his job to Owen, but he was a great friend of Darwin's. He's really divided over the camps, and he found it obviously politically and institutionally expedient not to come out aggressively on one side or the other. And I find similar things at work in Hooker's career. When I started working on Hooker, I was struck by the fact that people couldn't seem to make up their minds, historians couldn't seem to make up their minds, whether he was a kind of closet Darwinist waiting to go public with his support for Darwin, or whether he was actually a late or maybe even a reluctant convert. And when you read Hooker's art, uh, essay in which he first announces publicly his support for Darwin, this is his introduction to the flora of Australia that comes out just a month after The Origin of Species, and he says, you know, my full support for the ingenious theorizings of Mr. Darwin and Mr. Wallace and so on, but he seems constantly to be hedging his bets. And I think historians have found it hard to understand why this is. And my feeling after many years of working on this is that one of the things that what Hooker's doing is he's saying, look, this is a great revolution in science. This is going to give us a totally new rationale for what we do, why classification works, why we see these patterns in nature, what they actually mean. These are, as Darwin says in The Origin, the propinquity of descent is the hidden link that explains why uh, we can and do classify in the way we do. So we've got a properly philosophical underpinning, a real justification for what we've been doing for centuries. But what Hooker absolutely doesn't want, again for institutional and career reasons, is for the world of botany to be divided into pro- and anti-Darwinian botanists. So he's constantly stressing, look, the only difference between a Darwinian botanist and an anti-Darwinian one is the Darwinian knows that at some point in the infinitely distant future, the things he describes as species will need to be reclassified because they're evolving. But over the timescale of individual lives and individual institutions, it doesn't make any difference. So there's something kind of profoundly conservative about this revolution that doesn't change anything. And I think that conservatism is actually one of the things that rather appeals to Hooker about Darwinism, which again is, a, is an antidote to that picture of Darwin shaking the world 
uh, and upsetting everything and dividing the men of science. Men of science are actually divided over things like institutional loyalties, like patronage networks and so on. And some of them take up Darwinism as a stick with which to beat their enemies, Thomas Henry Huxley most obviously. But the point I want to leave you with is that if we, if we think that they kind of, they just read Darwin and thought, yes, I agree, or no, I don't, and that explains their then affiliations and conflicts and so on, I think we're missing a much wider story about how science is actually working in the Victorian period. And the way Darwin, the reception of Darwinism is really explained by the needs of the people who took up Darwin, what they were trying to achieve, where they were trying to get with their careers and their science, and what use Darwin was to them. So Darwin, as it were, becomes a footnote in everyone else's story, a rather ghostly presence in the background, which is the whole point of my work, really, <laughs> rather than being the central explanatory fact about everything. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, Jim. Now, um, our final speaker of the day is um, going to, in a way, be returning to our first speaker of the day by looking at the, the masses of London. And I think that when, when we're looking at the legacy of Darwinism, that perhaps some of the images that Linda showed us to start off with, the dores and the frits of the, the seething mass of London people, um, it, all, it all seems sort of tied together quite well. Um, Greta Jones is Professor of History at the University of Ulster, and she's Director of the Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland. Um, Greta's well known for her work on Darwinism as it relates to the history of medicine, um, including recently um, she's been doing some work on the influence of socialism on Alfred Russell Wallace's um, 1858 paper. Um, she's going to be talking today about mapping social evolution, social Darwinism in London. Thank you very much, Brett. Well, good afternoon, everyone. And um, I um, have no pictures to show you, I'm afraid. Um, I'm a little bit old-fashioned, and uh, most of what I... Um, convey to you will be um, by words only. I also have another confession to make, which is that I'm going to talk about London, but I'm a Mancunian. So if there's occasionally a sour note creeps into this address, um, please uh, forgive me. Um, I also, referring back to Linda's original uh, paper this morning, I'm absolutely convinced that the, the capital of the world in the 19th century was Manchester. However, I'm going to talk about London, and this is a, an address in which the working classes will make an appearance, because uh, much of what I talk is about the relationships between classes in London, and it's also about what you might call an imaginative construction of London using natural history and using ideas from Darwinism. I think as we um, go through it, there'll be kind of really four parts to it. The first, talking about London in particular, it's nature and um, working class within London. Then going on to talk about early attempts to um, classify and explain London according to natural history uh, terms. Then uh, talking about what we might call a crisis uh, occurring in the 1880s in London and I think throughout um, uh, Britain as a whole brought about by um, economic depression and the revival of trades unionism and socialism. And um, 
talking about, um, in that context, the impact of Darwinism in the debate that uh, took place in the 1880s about the social question. And I think I'll end up with what, what, what I think is really quite a critical view um, of this debate and its significance in what you might call um, British cultural and social history. So let's begin, um, first of all, by talking about the importance of urbanisation in uh, England as a whole. Um, it's a really significant transformation. Um, all cities grew in this time, um, some like Manchester and London in very spectacular fashion. Manchester from around 75,000 in 1800 to over 700 million by 1910, but London's growth was even more spectacular. There are about a million in 1800, but over 7 million by uh, 1910. But also, it's very important, and many historians of London have pointed this out, that London's not typical of England's industrial revolution. Most 19th century urban growth was based on industrial development or because a city was at the hub of communications. It was a new railway town or it was a port serving the industrial economy. But London, though she saw the amount of goods increasing through her ports, was, as Gareth Stedman Jones, the very important historian of London uh, points out, it actually deindustrialized in the 19th century, losing many of her industries to the new manufacturing centers of the Midlands and North. So apart from the docks, transport, gas, subsequently to play a very important part in the working class political history of London, most of London's manufacturing, or a very large proportion at least, remained small scale. It had a vast retail trade. It was a centre of administration and government. It was a place of fashion in which the rich would spend the London season. And much of the retail and manufacturing industries relied upon the season for their annual income. It remained really a city of small businesses and shops with a huge concentration of service industries serving the large population and the more specialised luxury market. And this makes it very distinctive from, for example, um, what Marx and Engels saw as significant in Manchester, where the chimneys of the textile industry stretched almost unbroken from the city centre, for example, to the out outskirts of Oldham in the east. And I uh, took a bus journey quite recently. Um, these are closed now. The mills are closed. It's only industrial heritage uh, industry which has stopped them. Uh, most of them, um, many of them have been pulled down. But on the bus, I counted... Ten on one side, 12 chimneys on another, five behind, another five forward. Uh, the bus moved on, and then there was another 15 there, five there, three there, ten. And it went on and on through a journey of about three or four, four five miles. And you can imagine at the height of the Industrial Revolution, when they're all working, what an absolutely tremendous impact this must have made on the visitor. And it was a city, Manchester, in which the social composition of the districts around the factories were largely solidly working class and industrial. Instead, in London, the social landscape there was more variegated, complex, harder to penetrate, more closed off to the casual eye. But also, in a way, and I'm going to talk about what, you might call, what were called at the time in the 19th century the nomad class in, 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 in uh, London, there were also parts of working class London and the London poor which were more visible. Historians have stressed that there is a large class of unskilled, underemployed, casual or se seasonal labour in London, which lived at the margins of existence in the great city. 
Now, I want to, to say this is a very traditional view of London in the 19th century, but, um, and it makes it quite unique among uh, uh, British cities. Not completely new, unique, but this is an important part of its uniqueness, of its difference. But it can be exaggerated. There were few large-scale concentrations of industrial manufacture, but there were places like Alfred Yarrow's shipyard on the Isle of Dogs, and then he moved it to Poplar, uh, which before he eventually moved to Clyde uh, in Scotland in 1906, but it produced river vessels and even ships for the Royal Navy. There was Cubitt's engineering works on the Gray's Inn Road and the Westinghouse Brake uh, Company at King's Cross. So um, there were um, places of industrial activity in London. And the historian Mark Brodie also argues that though there's definitely a layer of casual, poverty-stricken people, typical of many accounts of London in the 19th century, there were also a substantial strata of relatively prosperous artisans and workmen. Yet Brodie concedes that even if historians have understated the respectable East End, casual labour in London was a very significant part of the landscape, and it created what Brodie calls a conservative, fatalist culture based on short-term considerations, to say nothing of what uh, historians have pointed to, the hedonism, drinking, gambling, violence, which sometimes accompanied it. In the 1880s, large-scale immigration into London, mainly Jewish and from the Russian Empire, added to this sense of London as an unknown city, which needed an effort to understand, and an East End which was unsettled and constantly on the move. Right. In the 1840s, the journalist Henry Mayhew collected information and anecdotes about the London poor for the Morning Chronicle, which were eventually published in London Labour and the London Poor in 1861. He said, those that obtain their living in the streets of the metropolis are a very large and varied class. Indeed, the means resorted to in order to pick up a crust, as the people call it, in the public thoroughfares are so multifarious that the mind is long baffled in the attempts to reduce them to scientific order or classification. And it's here where you begin to see uh, metaphors from natural history creep into accounts from London, because Mayhew um, starts to use the um, work of the Bristol physician Dr. James Cowles Pritchard, which, who published in 1813 uh, The Physical History of Man and in um, 1843 The Natural History of Man. And these two accounts, which are basically anthropological um, and physical descriptions of the races, um, are used and adopted by Mayhew in his uh, description of the London poor. Now, James Cowles Pritchard was in many ways, um, his work on race prefigured Darwin's in that Pritchard defended the notion of descent from one stock and the original unity of mankind. And he argued that races were varieties of the human species, not separate species, and that geographical spread of peoples contributed towards racial individuation. So uh, Mayhew um, says... It is a curious fact that no one has yet applied the above facts to the explanation of certain anomalies in the present state of society among ourselves. And he argues that in London in particular, 
uh, we can use uh, Pritchard's classifications. And we must therefore use the order of races as a means of comprehending the more readily those of the vagabonds and outcasts of our own. And he says about London, we like the Kaffirs, fellas and Finns are surrounded by wandering hordes. He quotes Dr. Pritchard saying there are three principal varieties in the form of the head and other physical characteristics. The um, hunters and savage inhabitants of the forest have a form of head which is mostly distinguished by the term prognathus, in, in indicating a, prolongation, a pro prolongation or extension of forward of the jaws. A second shape of head being principally to such races as wander with their herds and flocks over the vast plains. These nations have broad lozenge-shaped faces. The most civilised races, those who leave, live by the arts of cultivated life, cultivated life have one that is oval or elliptical and he says he contends Mayhew that those who roamed the streets of London exhibiting exhibited among them the physical and cultural characteristics derived from uh, Pritchard's racial descriptions paupers beggars and outcasts possessing nothing but what they acquire by depredation from the industrious provident and civilized portions of the community the heads of these london nomads are remarkable for the greater development of the jaws and cheekbones and they have a secret language these people of their own or slang as it is called for the concealment of their designs i assume that um Steve Jones's reference to Welsh this morning was partly uh, uh, the use of this, this idea. The nomad, he says, is distinguished from the civilized man by his repugnance to regular and continuous labor, by his want of providence, by his passion for stupefying herbs and roots and liquor, by insensibility to pain, immoderate love of gambling and libidinous dances, by his delight in perilous sports, by the absence of chastity among his women, and by his utter irreligion. Now, um, Mayhew's description of London's nomad race was not just a scientific study, in fact, not primarily a scientific study. It was entertainment. Throughout the 19th century, London provided satisfaction for curiosity, sensation, scandal, moral panic, revulsion, purience, horror, fear, and amusement, and this sold newspapers. Curiosity was stimulated by the opaqueness of the city, which grew more pronounced as the century wore on. The rapid unplanned growth produced a flight to the suburbs, by the better off, a flight away from overcrowding, contagious diseases, smells, unplanned growth, and in the early part of the century, political turmoil. Suburban life was largely confined to those social classes who could afford regular railway fares, and railways in the 19th century were still quite expensive. This is why parts of urban Britain become a closed book, except to the representatives of law and order, the churches to an extent, and the sanitary inspector. Unraveling London, therefore, becomes a topic of great interest, and it carries with it an edge of disapproval, given the, given the discovery of classes like the nomad class seemingly so separate from respectable middle-class life. And as the century wore on, it also carried with it an edge of fear. Now, looking at London through the lens of natural history, it was therefore something that predated Darwin. 
Mayhew's nomad um, race went on being discussed right to the end of the 19th century by Arnold White, for example, in a contemporary review of 1885. He wrote an article on the nomad poor of London. But the appearance of Darwinism in 1859 added to the great variety of cultural and political discourses about um, natural history and Darwinism, which you can say crisscrossed London's life. The first way in which Darwin changed the cultural nature of London significantly was its contribution to the secularist movement. London had one of the lowest church attendances in the country compared with other cities, less than 20%. Religious affiliation was still important. It worked in politics. What, how you um, worshipped affected how you voted in the 19th and 20th century. The first election, which probably was on class lines, was in 1918, even the 1906 election. It was still largely determined by religious denomination. Um, so that um, although religious affiliation was important, it, uh, non-conformity, for example, had little influence over London Labour politics, making it rather different uh, from, uh, for example, parts of the West Riding and the uh, Midlands. But secularism and socialism were significant. This secularism filtered itself post-1859 through Darwinism. So not only did the secularist movement in London produce cheap editions of Darwin, Huxley and Spencer, aimed at the better-off working man, but street-corner oratory spread a Darwinian message. Beatrice Webb, in her diary, um, described an encounter with orators in Victoria Park in the East End on a Sunday afternoon in May 1887. Among them, she, went, she um, goes on, there was a messenger from the Hall of Science. He was explaining to an attentive audience of working men that man was an animal and nothing but an animal. His, the orator's, face was lined with sensuality and moved by a shallow quickness and assertiveness of thought. He used scientific phrases quoted freely from Huxley, Darwin and German physiologists and assumed a certain impartiality on his treatment of rival religious theories of man's development. So here's Darwin, um, spoken to by um, socialist secularists uh, on street corners in Victoria Park on Sunday and uh, spreading the name and gospel as they interpret it um, of Darwin. The second way in which it crisscrossed London was in a dialogue about Malthus, largely promoted by the activities of the Malthusian League founded in 1877 and whose paper, the Malthusian, appeared in 1879. Now, the Malthusian League is seen historically as significant for the promotion of contraception, and in a way this is true. But there was another important aspect was how it entangled itself in the politics of working-class London. Tom Mann, who becomes one of the leaders of the London Dock Strike in 1889, records in his memoirs reading the views of the Malthusian League in the late 1870s that the cause of poverty was unlimited multiplication. He felt at the time, he, to quote, that he did not feel equal to meeting the many arguments advanced by the Malthusians, nor could I convince myself that they were right. When he began the process of self-education in the 1870s, of which science formed an important part, he says, socialism was known only to a very few persons, and no socialist organization existed at this time. The visit of the American socialist Henry George to Britain in the late 1870s changed this, and man moved very rapidly from an enthusiasm 
for Henry George's vision of the single tax through to the Marxist socialism of the Social Democratic Federation, which was founded in 1881. And this meant that his um, debate with Malth Malthusian ideas um, over the issue of poverty among the poor, um, you know, he began to resolve it in the direction of um, Marxist socialism for a start. We should also remember that Alfred Russell Wallace, co-discoverer of the theory of natural selection, shared many of the cultural attributes of the reading and thinking London artisan. He too had received an early political education in a hall of science just behind the Tottenham Court Road. He followed the doctrines of the socialist uh, Robert Owen, but also he too rediscovered his uh, socialist ideals in the late 1870s through the agency of Henry George. He criticized the application of Malthusian ideas to social questions. He was not a secularist, but a spiritualist, but certainly he had abandoned conventional Christianity um, in his early life. And he was embraced by that community of London radicals and socialists. There are frequent re references to Wallace as the exemplification of Darwinism in the socialist press at this time. He shared an intellectual platform with the community, contributing in 1897 an article to the book Forecasts of the Coming Century, published by the Labour Press, which included contributions from Tom Mann, William Morris, Bernard Shaw, Edward Carpenter, and the Darwinian popularizer and novelist, Grant Allen. So um, there's two ways to a working class audience. There is a versions of Darwinism circulating and um, ideas from uh, Darwinism which are being debated. But the most well-known way in which um, Darwinism, in a sense, inter interpolated itself with discourses in London was in the... Um, issue of the crisis which occurred in the 1880s. Um, now, um, when you look at the history of capitalism in Britain, 1830s and 40s are very difficult times because, believe it or not, there was a series of bank failures. There were financial crises due to unregul an unregulated banking system which was vulnerable to fraud and speculation. And this was the time at which Marx developed his um, ideas that capitalism would in the long run collapse under the weight of its own contradictions, a conclusion with which many respectable capitalist economists also agreed. So, um, however, in the 1850s and 60s, there were, um, capitalism moved into very smooth waters. It was a period of stability and prosperity. And at that time, the market um, capitalism approached closest it had ever done in the 19th century to the notion of the invisible hand and a million individual acts of self-interest which together increased wealth. Herbert Spencer in that decade coined the phrase survival of the fittest and in a sense Herbert, Herbert Spencer's evolution, uh, evolutionary ideas were the exemplification of this very utopian view of how capitalism worked. By the late 1880s this view was in a sorry state Economic depression had occurred in the 1870s. There was a rise in uh, Britain's, uh, Britain's industrial predominance was being challenged. And the 1880s are well known, especially in London, which became the seat of a very um, uh, important conflict, which was to affect the way politics were going to be conducted uh, right up to the First World War and beyond. Um, the uh, 
There are relatively well-known events, the unemployment riots of February 1886 and November 1887, uh, in which both cases there was an incursion into the West End of London of East End unemployed, leading to riots and um, police action, a pitched battle in Trafalgar Square um, in uh, November 1887. There was a revival of trade unionism in the 1880s, which was particularly unique because it was the first time you got the creation of unskilled and semi-skilled trade unions. Uh, most of the early ones in the 1850s and 60s had been from skilled working men. Um, industrial militancy led to two very famous strikes, the uh, Bryant and May strike of 1886 and the Great Dock strike of 1889, which involved Tom Mann, John Burns and Ben Tillett. Uh, all of them at, this, at that time were members of the Marxist Social Democratic Federation. Um, London begins to look threatening not just to the respectable individual, but to the whole social system. So an entry from Webb's diary noted, in, this is 1st of February 1890, noted that London is in a ferment. Strikes are the order of the day. The new trade unionism with its magnificent conquest of the docks is striding along with an arrogance. The socialists led by a small set of able young men are manipulating London. And, uh, but I, from the peculiarity of my social position, should be in the midst of all parties, sympathetic with all. I have new acquaintances among the leading socialists, but as a background, all those respectable and highly successful men, my brothers-in-law, typical of the old regime of private property and self-interested action. And when I turn from the luxurious homes of the, these picked men of the individualist system and struggle through the East End crowd of the wrecks, the waifs, the strays of the, the civilization, and I hear the bitter cry of the 19th century working man and 19th century working uh, woman. Now, the outcome to this crisis was several. Um, an increasing attempt to moralize the poor of London by teaching Christian virtues, thrift, abstinence, and self-reliance. Uh, the most famous of this was the religious mission to London of the Salvation Army founded in 1865. But between 1884 and 1900, 26 slum settlements were founded by various religious denominations in the East End of London. The most famous and influential uh, among the political classes was Toynbee Hall, which Canon uh, Samuel Bar Barnett and his wife Henrietta set up in Whitechapel in 1884. And there, a succession of middle-class individuals, a great many of them university students, uh, went, were encouraged to live for a while, reacquaint themselves with London's poor, and if possible, elevate uh, the poor, heal the divisions that were perceived to exist between the classes and recreate order, stability and deference. And Toynbee Hall was famous because it had uh, residents like William Beveridge and Clement Attlee, both of whom spent a time there. But the poverty of the East End was by the Reverend Samuel Barnett's own admission seemingly intractable in even in the face of religious conversion. So Barnett said in 1886 in an article for the 19th century on distress in London that the study of the condition of the people receives hardly as much attention as that which Sir John Lubbock gives to the ants and the wasps. But good, bold good men discuss the poor and checks are given by irresponsible benefactors. But there are few students who reverently and patiently make observations on social conditions, accumulate facts and watch cause and events. Scientific method has won the great victories of the day, and scientific method is everywhere except in the field of human affairs, which, most, which are most important. Scientific method had, 
in Barnett's view, two sides, empirical investigation, but also the attempt to wield the story of East End poverty into a grand Darwinian uh, scheme. Henry Heinemann, who led the Social Democratic um, uh, Federation, claimed in the 1880s that 25% of Londoners were living in poverty. And Charles Booth, a retired ship owner from Liverpool, started to produce what Barnett would regard as a really scientific investigation of the East End. Uh, a social investigation which he paid for out of his own prof uh, profits from his um, firm. It, it was self-financed. He used paid and unpaid investigators, including Beatrice Webb. And he um, did a street-by-street -street survey of the East End. He eventually published these in the 1890s in a whole series of volumes uh, on the life and labor of the people of London. But before the final publication of the um, uh, volumes, he had actually, um, although he was surprised and alarmed at this, confirmed Hindman's view of the extent of poverty in London. He calculated a third of the East End uh, and 25% uh, of London's population as a whole, third of the East End, but 25 of the London as a whole, had insufficient income in the 1880s to meet the basic necessities of life, which were defined very um, uh, sparsely. Now, where Darwin entered the, into the debate was in the explanation. Charles Booth, before he did the survey, he begins the survey, had a very optimistic Spencerian view of how the economy worked. But, this, but uh, his own survey shook his confidence in the nature of Spencerian economics. But this is what he said in an address to the Royal Statistical Society in May 1887 in an article on Tower Hamlets. Lack of work is not really the disease with them. The mere provision of it is therefore useless as a cure. The unemployed are, as a class, a selection of the unfit. And on the whole, those most in want are the most unfit. This is the crux of their position. In the 19th century, in, uh, in, eight, in 1887, in the periodical The 19th Century, Heinemann of the SDF complained about this language. Among the cultivated minority, he said, there's a sort of unexpressed belief to the effect that if the working men were fit for anything better, then they would become part of the minority of the rich themselves. The survival of the fittest is one of those pseudo-scientific arguments which does great service in support of this view of the poor. In the same periodical in the following year, Huxley en enters the debate. Spencer's condemnation of state intervention as such irritated him because he's very much in favor of state-supported education and scientific research. Uh, and he, uh, he, in the 1880s and early 90s, he's administering sharp raps to Spencer in various ways. And in this article, he comes out as in favor of a program of moderate social reform. Um, it's more technology, higher wages because cheap labor is a false economy, sanitary improvements, state education. But he also warns Hindman and the socialists that natural selection puts limits on their utopian visions. And he goes on, so long as unlimited multiplication goes on, no social organization which has ever been devised or fiddle-faddling with the distribution of wealth will deliver society from the tendency to be destroyed by the production within itself of, in its intensest form of that struggle for existence 
the limitation of which is the object of society. This is a complex sentence which tries to convey both his belief that struggle for existence is not a desirable or, uh, thing, but also his attempt to use what you might call Malthusianism against the, what he regards as extreme socialism. Now, I'm, I'm getting to the end, and I hope I have a few more minutes. It's not only the liberal and conservative opinion that believed that natural selection and evolution had created within London an unfit class. Among those who believed this was the novelist, uh, the American novelist, Jack London. He's an nov American novelist, uh, best-selling author, and he's a socialist. But in 1902, he visits England and he decides to pose as an out-of-work sailor and live in the East End to observe the social conditions. The outcome of this is a book which I had, which was in our house when I was a child, called The People of the Abyss. He, in the introduction to it, written from California, if you can believe, he says, the experiences related in this volume fell to me in the summer of 1902. I went down into the underworld of London with an attitude of mind which I may best liken to that of the explorer. He consulted Thomas Cook, the travel agent, who said, consult the police. We are not accustomed to taking travellers to the East End. We receive no call to take them. And we know nothing whatsoever about the place at all. So he goes on and does it. Um, he does his own organisation and passes for an out-of-work sailor and lives there for a while. And he says about the East End, A new race has sprung up, a street people. They pass their lives at work and in the streets. They have dens and lairs in which to, they crawl for sleeping purposes, and that is all. As they grow older, they become steeped and stupefied in beer. They are to be met with everywhere, standing on curbs and corners, staring into, vacancies, into, va into vacancy. Now, there were more routine accounts from um, Jack London's pen, pen of family poverty in the East End, among the respectable who'd fall, fallen on hard times, and serious discussion of the industries and economy of working-class London. By the way, Alfred Russell Wallace contributes in the 1870s a very good, well-informed uh, article on the London building trade, which he um, was acquainted with from the 1830s because his brother was in it, and it's on wages, economic structure, um, the effect of the Depression, etc., etc. And there's plenty of that in Jack London. But he is gripped, just like Mayhew was, by the spectacle of the London street people. And he saw this as in essentially evolutionary terms. Class supremacy can rest, he argues, only on class degradation, and when the workers are segregated in the ghetto, they cannot escape the consequent deg degradation. To make matters worse, the men who are left are a deteriorated stock, left to undergo still further deteriorations. For the 150 years at least, they have been drained of their best, and those that are lacking, the weak of heart and head and hand, as well as the rotten and hopeless, have remained to carry on the breed, and year by year in turn, the best they breed are taken from them. He accounts a walk taken at night from Spitalfields to Whitechapel, along what he calls the commercial street, but I think he means the commercial road. He says, I was glad the keepers, meaning the police, were there. I was what is called a mark for the creatures of prey that prowled up and down. These males looked at me sharply, hungrily, gutturals that they were, and I was afraid of their hands, their naked hands, as one may be afraid of the paws of a gorilla. 
They reminded me of gorillas. Their bodies were small, ill-shaped, and squat. There were no swelling muscles or wide-spreading shoulders. They exhibited rather an elemental economy of nature, such as the cavemen must have exhibited. But there was strength in those mere bodies, the ferocious primordial strength to which to clutch and gripe and tear and rend. They possess neither conscience nor sentiment, and they will kill for half a sovereign. They are a new species, a breed of city savages, and as valley and mountain are to the natural savage, street building are valley and mountain to them. And he warned of the coming social cataclysm which they would bring about. The dear soft people of the golden theatres and wonder mansions of the West End do not see these creatures, do not dream they exist. Woe the day when England is fighting in her last trench and her able-bodied men are on the firing line. For on that day they will crawl out of their dens and the people of the West End will see them and ask themselves, whence came they? Are they men? Jack London's view is it lies in the issue of the management, what he calls the management. And he argues for total reorganisation of society and um, socialism, uh, that this is the only solution to the street uh, people. Uh, and to the division between the West End and the East End, which he regards as, at one end, the West End riotous and rotten, and the other end, the East End, sickly and underfed. Now, I am coming to the end of the, um, this, this, this um, because I want to um, say something about this vision. This is an imaginative reconstruction. I'm not altogether sure it has the significance which people gave it at the time. It definitely had a significance. It was the burning question of the 1880s. It influenced the political parties. It, it, the whole generation became obsessed with this. It became even fashionable to go to the East End to look at social conditions. It became a, a void of discovery. But... And it, it's seen as, as the, the, you know, important for the whole of uh, Britain. It's a discourse, but it's a discourse dominated by the casual worker and the street people. Uh, and it's also dominated by a notion of the East End as a kind of crucible in which the social cataclysm threatening Britain was being cooked up. And it represented all that was alien, threatening, and very, very close because East End and West End they meet together, and the street people wander in, in between uh, these two areas. But much of it's a narrative concocted to amaze, titillate, shock the reading public. And much of it was concocted by journalists such as Mayhew and W.T. Stead of the Pall Mall Gazette, who, who goes on, uh, who also becomes a purveyor of narratives of London life, which provided the middle class public with constant stories of degradations and scandal. Um, and nobody denies the reality of much of the material. And it's as well to remind oneself of the great, um, of the existence in London of what was in the 19th century real grinding third world style poverty, side by side with enormous wealth. Yet, it, and it can, but it conceals other na narratives, that's my argument. And yet all parties exploited the shock of London. Publicity and the use of the press were vital in both the Dockers and Bryant May, and May strikes. Uh, because of the weakness of uh, unskilled trades unionism, mobilizing public opinion by presenting a dramatic story was one of the weapons used to compensate for the lack of industrial strength among these unions. Tom, Mann, Tillett, Burns all put their hand to the dramatic gesture 
street politics, the cultivation of West End benefactors, rhetorical excess, the drama of street politics. Clergymen um, such as Andrew Mearns, who produced the pamphlet The Bitter um, Cry of Outcast London in 1883, were also accused of exaggerated narratives, which were in the short term very successful in raising money for distress in the East End. So that, as George Bernard Shaw said, social reform in London owed more to Jack the Ripper and the lurid headlines it provoked about conditions in Whitechapel than it did to the whole army of social investigators and clergymen. But London's not typical. It's not even the leading city in the development of 19th century trade union politics. It has lower than average trade union membership compared with the rest of Britain. It's a Tory stronghold. Even, it's a restricted franchise, but then uh, there was some working class electorate. It was a Tory stronghold for much of the 19th century. Uh, there's two safe liberal seats, Whitechapel, is one of them, but they elected a liberal largely because he was seen as the Jewish candidate and there was a concentration of Jewish emigration in Whitechapel. Socialist parties were very important to people like Beatrice Webb, to Charles um, Booth, to Andrew uh, Means, to um, uh, what you might call um, the West End uh, crew, but they had very little national representation. And the Labour Party formed in 1980 was largely a party of the West Riding, Lancashire, the industrial Celtic fringe, though it has a strong uh, representation from London. Webb recognised the pe peculiar nature of the obsession with the London poor. She went undercover, posing as a Welsh farmer's daughter, a Miss Jones, to visit her poor relations, her mother's family, in Bacup, Lancashire in 1883. And she took an alias to avoid embarrassing them as a rich relation and also to experience life on greater equality. She says, mere philanthropists are apt to overlook the existence of an independent working class. And when they talk sentimentally of the people, they really mean the ne'er-do-wells. It's almost a pity that the whole attention of the politician should be directed towards this latter class. And she f seems to find in Bake Up a much more uh, church-going, very strongly uh, community-centered, um, very highly respectable and independent um, working class. But the point is this that some of the dominance of London and the discourse about London, is swept away in 1916-18. The danger lurking in the lairs of London was seen to be an illusion. The real threat to social stability came from the conversion of the skilled working trades unionists, the engineer, shipwright, and then the coal miner and textile worker, to socialism and revolutionary ideal ideals. They were the ones who created the British Communist Party, and they were the ones also who created the Soviets in Britain which sprang up in 1918-19. Nor do we have to take at face value these accounts and these narratives of how rich and poor, respectable and disreputable interacted in London. For example, the class of idle loafers which figured in Charles Booth's classifications of the poor in East London could in fact be applied to the rich. It was idle loafing which eventually drove Beatrice Webb to seek some relief from boredom as a social investigator in the East End. I remember from Darwin's autobiography the very severe ticking off he received from his um, father uh, for his fondness for um, field sports and failure to settle down to any profession that Darwin himself would soon join the ranks of idle loafer if he didn't get his act together. 
The settlement movement in itself provided a great deal of worthy work for the unemployable rich, those who would otherwise have frittered their days away. So just as Marx said that the empire of India was a vast system of poor relief for the middle classes, so the stream of investigators, social workers and social missionaries provoked by the crisis in the East End had probably more important impact in the long run in occupying the unemployable among the better off than it did among the unemployable poor. Um, it's also uh, clear that, um, in my last paragraph now, that the um, relationship between the poor and rich, um, which was um, often seen from the point of view of the poor as operating in the other direction. And in Shaw's play, Major Barbara, it's set, um, one of the scenes set in a Salvation Army soup kitchen, a respectable married woman is rebuked by a fellow inmate for misrepresenting herself as a fallen woman. And she replies, what am I to do? I can't starve. Them Salvation Army lasses is dear good girls, but the better you are, the worse they like to think you are before they rescued you. Why shouldn't they have a bit of credit? They are worn to rags by their work. And where would they get the money to rescue us if we let on we were no worse than other people? You know what ladies and gentlemen are. Her interlocutor then decides, his name is Price, well, you know what, um, I'm going to be Bronte O'Brien Price, the converted painter. I know what they like. I'll tell them how I blasphemed and gambled and whopped my poor old mother. And he's, um, she says, oh, you used to beat your mother? Not likely she used to beat me. No matter, you come and listen to the converted painter and you will hear how she was a pious woman that taught me prayers at her knee and how I used to come home drunk and drag her out of bed by her snow-white hairs and lamb into her with a poker. Shaw saw it was poverty, not morality, that lay at the root cause of the East End's problem. He also saw that solving it would produce great disappointment in the well-meaning benefactors of the poor. For the amelioration of poverty would liberate the poor from their influence. He warned that the poor shorn of their poverty would no longer be interesting, nor use their freedom from want to engage in worthwhile pursuits. They would be impervious to admonition. But he also said it was a price worth paying. Shaw, however, also looked to Darwinism, not to save capitalism, but socialism. The ambitions of socialism's political um, utopias could only be achieved, he believed, with better people. Capitalism could only work by depressing character, but socialism only worked by elevating it. Thus, Shaw, in his own lifetime, looked to his own version of eugenic selection to create the new socialist utopia. That's it.